TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Glenn is not going to like this. <laughs> Rob Cherry in for Glenn Mack now today with Mike Sealski for a Saturday morning. Mike, how are you? I'm great, Rob. Good to be here with you. It's uh, Now, we've never worked together, but you've been a guest on shows I've been on. Like that is the correct. The show this week. That is correct. There is so much going on right now. It's it's unbelievable. It, it's a great time of year. It really is. Um, you know, college football is starting again. we got the NFL on the horizon. Uh, the Phillies are treating September so far like they've treated the last few Septembers. It's uh, it's pretty cool. That's what I wanted to start with is the Phillies because what, what it was scary what happened last night. You know, you look, going into that road trip that they're on now on the West Coast, Glenn and I had talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You say to yourself, okay, they've, they've basically got a month where they're not going to face a team that's over 500. Except for the Braves at some point. Right, yeah. in the middle of September. So you're going to, you should be able to solidify yourself in the playoff race, maybe put some distance between yourself and the San Diego Padres, kind of solidify that second wild card, maybe even chase the Braves if you have delusions of grandeur. And you lose two out of three to the Diamondbacks. You come into San Francisco and get blown out 13-1. to And this is three out of the last four games that they've surrendered double-digit runs. This is insane. And their starting pitching's been brutal. So here's how last night went for me. I'm not sure how it went for you. Uh, there was a riveting tennis match between Serena Williams and uh, what was her opponent's name? Ilja I- Ijla Tomjanovic. At this point, it doesn't matter who it is because <laughs> everybody's rooting against her. Yeah. I mean, I feel bad for whoever's playing them, but, but I think they're even rooting for Serena. It, it, I, I heard somebody describe... Uh, the last two matches that Serena played, anytime one of her opponents would get a point, there was a golf clap in yeah. in, in Arthur Ashe Stadium. And that's true. I mean, the, the crowds were so partisan for Serena, and understandably so. It's probably the last time she'll play in the U.S. Open. She's nearing retirement. The sentiment is there, and that's the way that crowd at that event acts. We've seen it in the past with... Jimmy Connors and other people like if that. If you walk out of the room, which I did several times during those, it was a long, it was like what, th- close to three hours, I yeah. think. You walk out of the room, you hear applause, wild applause, you know, that Serena won. If you hear, you know, the golf clap, it's exactly. the other girl wins a point. Uh, and, you know, everybody was acknowledging how great she is mm-hmm. and appreciates her greatness, even those who are tired. I mean, when somebody wins a lot, at times you get tired. It's like, well, let's get somebody new in here. Yeah. No and, matter who it is. Yeah, that's true. But the, the flip side of that, is that the line and winner coming back to make a charge yes. late in his or her yes. career is one of the most compelling stories in sports. You know, the idea of Tom Brady, I know he's a villain around here, I get that. 
But to have him win another Super Bowl with the Buccaneers, there's something interesting and dramatic yeah. about that. It's a story. It's a story that everybody sort of can relate to. It's like, mm-hmm. well, this this person was supposed to be washed up, supposed to retire, whatever, and they're still out there doing what they're doing. Th- there's a reason that. Top Gun Maverick has made a bazillion dollars <laughs> in, th- in theaters this summer. Part of it is be- for that reason. I think it's Tom Cruise and the character, like, he's old, is he still an ace kind of thing. And if you've seen that movie, it's a very dramatic storyline. I think we, as a society, kind of like that narrative. No, I didn't see every second of the match, but I understand Ben Simmons' picture came up on the uh, video board, big board. The, the, apparently, the only boos that have taken place <laughs> in the entire they know? tournament, you know, it didn't take him long up there in Brooklyn to uh, kind of reveal what we had seen in Philadelphia since his time uh, joining the Sixers. They asked him to play in game four. Are you ready? And he said no. 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 Didn't even want to be on their uh, little uh, team meeting or whatever. It's funny. I'll I'll listen sometimes to people on TV, you know, national NBA coverage, whether it's ESPN or Fox Sports, things like that. And and you hear people say things like, well, if you know, look at the Nets. If if you have Kevin Durant and if Kyrie Irving gets his head right and if Ben Simmons is there, Ben Simmons isn't going to have to take any jump shots. If you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, it's kind of like, you know, at some point, folks, you have to evaluate (laughs) what you're seeing regularly from this team and and. The idea that the Brooklyn Nets are going to be a team to be reckoned with just strikes me as kind of, you know, pie in the sky, ridiculous thing. doesn't Ben Simmons still have a high ceiling if he ever devotes himself to learning how to shoot or practicing shooting? I don't know, Rob. I really don't. I mean, in theory, yes, but he, he hasn't done it yet. I mean, but he's only 26 years old? Yeah, I mean, but, but everybody knew this thing about him and has right. known this thing about him for years. I can remember talking to his father before Game 6 of the Sixers-Raptors series back in 2019 at the Wells Fargo Center. And I asked Dave Simmons point blank, what about the fact that Ben won't shoot? And his father said, don't worry about it. He's 22. He's 23. He's young. Just enjoy it. It's such an honor that he gets to to guard Kawhi Leonard in this series. And I was kind of like, okay, uh, I guess. And he's made no progress and, if anything, regressed since then. And Kawhi Leonard hit that shot over Ben Simmons. Yeah, yeah, and Joel Embiid. So it's, yeah, here we are. Well, the most damning thing I ever heard him say, and it was, I think there were only a few reporters around, uh, I don't know if it was a practice or whatever, but they asked him what if he needed to work on his shooting in the offseason, whatever, something like that. And his response was, I'm an all-star. Yeah, yeah, that's our friend Jack McCaffrey from yeah. the Delco Times. I'm an all-star yeah. is his response to, you need to work on my shooting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, he's 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 a different cat in that, you know, I th- I think he's, and I actually wrote a, a column about this in the Inquirer a couple of weeks ago. Like, he's he's a case study, and like there were red flags all over the place with him, but it became conventional wisdom to think, well, they either they don't matter or they won't matter, and here's why he should be the first pick in the draft. And it became very easy to overlook the fact that, for instance, LSU took a step backward with him from the previous season. Or that he would score a lot of points and collect a lot of rebounds and LSU would still lose. Uh, Or that in Australia, he wasn't playing against a really high level of competition compared to, say, the AAU and high school and college teams that kids who were born and grow up in the States do. So, you know, you get this kind of collective narrative of, well, he's going to be the first pick in the draft because everybody says he's going to be the first pick in the draft and that he should be. 
And then you end up with these weaknesses that never get corrected. And only in hindsight can you look back and say, oh, well, we should have seen this coming. Well, who knew that his work ethic would be like, I'll work on everything else, but I won't work on this. Right. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it was the one thing. And, and, you know, you wonder about him from that mental health standpoint. I know we're all skeptical and rightly so uh, of it. But there's clearly something there where he does not want to shoot the ball. And that's, and that's a, a mental health thing. Yeah. That's a mental, that's something that's mental if you're yeah. not it's, wanting to it's, shoot. It's Steve Sachs' disease of yeah. of basketball. Which very few people, and we've seen it with guys shooting free throws. Right. We generally don't see it with guys shooting jump shots. Right. Yeah, that's 100% right. But, I mean, and that's the thing, right? It's it's anybody, any layperson watching a basketball game can see Ben Simmons and see his speed, see the way he handles the ball, see the way he passes the ball, and say, boy, if he only shot, took would shoot the ball, Imagine the player he would be. And that's what I think at its core frustrated so many people during his tenure here was you can see how great he will become, could become, and it's he's not tapping into that, and he seemingly just refuses to do so. He has four superior skills. It's mm-hmm. the fifth that he just doesn't, yep. doesn't want to work yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. All right, so anyway, so he gets booed at the Open. The Open ends, and I don't know, but I stayed around for the interviews mm. because I wanted to hear what Serena had to say. I actually wanted to hear what her opponent had to say about Serena because mm-hmm. it was so fascinating. I, I didn't stay for the—I was, uh, I was I'm down the shore this weekend yeah. in Sea Isle City. My, my kids were in bed. I needed to get, get to bed. <laughs> but So I didn't stay for the interviews. Were they compelling? Yeah, I mean Serena to me at, at this point of her career or at the end of her career, just to hear what they ha- what an athlete has to say about the end, mm-hmm. and and hear her thank all these different yeah. people. It's just and you've never seen uh, you haven't seen the uh, the movie about uh, King Richard. No, I have, which was a fascinating movie. Mm-hmm. Just to to hear like the end of her career uh, to me, it's like it's a historical thing. Yeah, the, the one thing I did hear her say was that um she thanked Venus for her role yes. in Serena's success, which was really touching to me you know yeah. that i have two sons and and i want them to be close i want them to be best friends and the fact that serena and venus seem to have that relationship which is not necessarily an easy thing given that serena the younger yes. sister yeah. eclipsed the older sister as a player um that 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 touched me to hear her say that yeah it was it was a very touching and she obviously was, serena was emotional but then they go to venus and she's not i'm like well there's got to be a reason behind that mm. Maybe she just knows the cameras are on her yeah, and she's yeah. trying not to take from her sister's moment. That could be. Um, so anyway, so that ends and the Phillies game is on. Mm. So and, and it's on Apple TV, which is not the easiest thing to find. No. Not, uh, no. You have to have you have to either have Apple TV, have to have a laptop or Mac or whatever. So I turn that on and it's four nothing already. Ooh. And then it's seven nothing. Jock Peterson hits a three run homer. And then yeah. it's like, what the hell is going on with this team? Yeah. Pitching, pitching, pitching. And the irony of this is that People seem to think, and justifiably so, that that would be a strength for the Phillies coming down the stretch. Starting pitching. Starting pitching. You had Wheeler and Nola. And Suarez. And and Rangers have been a solid number three starter. And Dave Dombrowski had fortified the bullpen. He had gone out and gotten David Robertson. And you thought, okay, he got Noah Syndergaard, you know, who, who may or may not start a game in the playoffs, assuming the Phillies get there. But at least he can help you get there every fifth or sixth day. And he looked solid, except for the last game. He's looked solid in all of his starts. Yeah. Um, and now they've, they've just hit this patch, you know, the first two games of the Diamondbacks series and, and last night against the Giants where it might as well be slow-pitch softball out there. It is it is scary. So is this the beginning of the end? Or was last night confirmation that, you know, this is it? <sighs> this is where they're headed right now. We're going to get another September where we're disappointed. I think everybody is 
you know, cynical about this, and justifiably so. The Phillies have not been good the last three or four Septembers. You know, you go back to 2018 when the guy who beat them last night, Gabe Kapler, was their manager. They were like 14 games over 500 in the summer, and then by September, it was starting to fall apart. Yeah, it really was. And um, they were, what, 14 and 16, I think, in September and October last year. Um, Got swept by the Braves in that critical series where... Even though Bryce Harper was rightly the MVP, he didn't hit in that one series, and it, and it kind of hurt a little bit. Not to take anything away from the season he had, but you know that was the most important series of the season. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fair to to say to the Phillies, you got to show us, guys. You know, yeah, a number of you haven't been here the last few years, Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, guys like that, but the, the most most of you have, and it's time to play like you're in a pennant race and it doesn't bother you it seems to something seems to happen to this team come September you mentioned Bryce Harper I believe they were 32 and 20 or 33 and something like that when when he was out Mm -hmm. they're supposed to get better when he comes back (laughs) what what, I mean seriously what's happened well Castellanos missed a couple games with turf toe uh and look Bryce Harper can go up there and go four for four every night if you're if your pitchers are going to give up 13 runs each night you're going to have a hard time winning games. Um, So Rob Thompson said after last night's game, you know, this is a blip. This is, we will get out of this. This is just one of those stretches in a baseball season where things go haywire and they'll eventually stabilize themselves again. Maybe he's right, but I can understand the anxiety that Phillies fans are feeling right now because it looks like at least after last night, oh my gosh, it's September and here we go again. All right, now i got to ask you about the pitching. Aaron Nola, um, obviously his last start was hideous. Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about September with it. Last year, it seemed like it was all throughout the season. Sprinkled throughout the season, he had games like that where he melted down. Is this it? Is this what he is now? Look, there's an argument to be made that Aaron Nola is underrated. If you look at the totality of his career with the Phillies, uh, that the number of in- innings he pitches, his, his ERA, his walks and hits per innings pitched, you know, the numbers that really count for a starting pitcher, generally compared to to other starters in the National League, he's really, really good. But there's also no denying the fact that he is not pitched like an ace at any time during September when the team has been in contention. So, again, I would say the same thing about Nola that I say about the Phillies as a whole. It is on him and them to prove to the people who follow them that they are ready for prime time. And his last start brings all those questions back up. They just It just does. Uh, the baseball draft began in 1965. Mm-hmm. Since then, the two best pitchers they've drafted, starting pitchers they've drafted, are Cole Hamels and Aaron Nola. There you go. In s- how many years? 57 years? Yeah. Those are the two best pitchers they've drafted. Yeah. Why can't this team draft, pit- draft pitchers? I mean, look at their history. They They – have precious few periods where they draft well at all. You right. had, you know, the late 60s into the early 70s with Paul Owens and, you know, where they draft Schmidt and they get Boa. Boa you know, yeah, the, that young core. And then you have the Mike Arbuckle era, um, you know, where he's leading the scouting staff and they're able to draft, you know, they draft Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins and Ryan Howard and Hamels and you get Ryan Madsen and you find Carlos Ruiz and before you know it, you're celebrating a World Series and five straight division titles. And it's been pretty barren, all things considered, since then. And look, Rob, this is a team that this season, a franchise, won its 10,000th game 
in its history. And they've got over 11,000 losses. They no. lost their 10,000th game 15 years ago. We celebrated that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was before they won a World Series, we, before they got good. Yeah. Really good. 2007, they yeah. lost their 10,000th game. So the Phillies are what they are. I, look, I grew up as a kid loving them. Um, I've covered them for a long time. Not as much the last couple of years, but um, there's a reason why people kind of look to the sky every September for the anvil that's going to fall on their head. And there's a lot of history in that regard, and uh, I'm sure people are feeling it this morning, too. My childhood as well, 1964, when they collapsed in late September. All right, so the last question I have about the Phillies is, why has an attendance matched the way they've played this season? Is it because Phil's fans are skeptics and waiting for the sky to fall in and waiting for them to actually prove themselves? I, I think that's part of it. Glenn and I have, have batted this around a bit the last couple of weeks. Um, I think that's part of it. I think, at least this past week, speaking as a as a parent, my two kids were starting school again, so getting them to you know, activities and stuff outside of um, anything related to school was not a high priority. Um, if the Phillies had been in town, I wouldn't have taken them to you know, anywhere, let alone a, a Phillies game. I think cost is an issue. Um, I saw a, a report a couple of weeks ago from a, a tech reporting firm that ranked the average cost of a family of four to go to a Major League Baseball game based on the the stadium and the team that you'd go to see. And the Phillies were kind of in the middle of the pack, but it was more than $200 for the, between right. the tickets and parking and food and drinks and all of that stuff. So, And I do think your point is is well taken, that there's skepticism. It is, okay, you know, we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, and, and the final wild card, I think, is that the re- one of the big reasons that the 07 to 2011 teams were loved as much as they were was that their very best players were homegrown players. And Bryce Harper, people love him, but he's not a homegrown Philly. They didn't watch him grow up, so to speak. And I think that in baseball, that matters. I think it does. So the fact that he's from Washington, even though Washington won a championship after he left, the fact that we hated him for a while, we can't because Pete Rose came here in 1979, I guess it was. And look, we hated him as a Red. Mm-hmm. Were, Dykstra came here yeah. and loved him as a Philly. Loved both these guys as a Philly. There's no love, and he got a standing O his first his first mm-hmm. week here. And yeah, I'm not I'm not saying people don't love Bryce Harper. I'm just saying that 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 uh, th- those teams, the two Phillies teams that won championships, the '80 team and the and the 2018, people could grow up with those right, teams right. in a way that they haven't been able to with these teams now. The Phillies went just basically went out and said, we're going to spend a lot of money and get some guys who can hit, and Zach Wheeler. And that's what they've done. And if I'm not saying that if they get to the playoffs, people won't be excited and, and all of that. But I am saying that there's something different about a team where you can watch, ooh, who's this kid Ryan Howard, he's been hitting home runs in the minor leagues, and now he's up here. Chase Utley was the first-round pick, and oh my gosh, his first major league hit is a grand slam. There's something kind of magical and sentimental about having a team that's great built around guys who you saw come up when they were young yet we love jim tell me right away oh yeah people love jim tell me right yep. away yeah well it was hard not to a really good guy yeah really good work guy. ethic and all that stuff so anyway uh we'll get to a lot of we'll get some phillies conversation going we come back also we're going to talk some eagles and throw some things about the eagles who Sounds start good. in eight days yeah uh, yeah, a week from tomorrow. In Detroit. And there's, obviously there's questions about the Eagles, but there's a lot of answers as well. Yeah, there yeah. are. I think they should be pretty good. All right, Rob Cherry in for Glenn Mack now with Mike Sealski. WIP Sports Time is 1020.
215-592-9494. Rob Cherry in for Glenn Mack now with Mike Sealski this morning. So we're talking about the Phillies uh, who uh, play in San Francisco this afternoon. Well, the second of their uh, three-game series against Gabe Kapler. So they're one and three yeah. on this West Coast road trip. Yeah, not good. West Western road trip. No, it's not. And this was the trip where you thought, well, if there's going to be any hiccups along the way in September, this might be it. Well, you did and you didn't because they were going for, they were playing five series in a row. And the combined records as of last week with those five of those five teams was something like ninety nine games under five hundred. So you thought, you know, okay, they're beating up on Cincinnati and Pittsburgh at home. Then they got to go on the road and face the Diamondbacks, who weren't very good. They've been really hot lately. Uh, and you get the Giants, who have been They've lost seven in a row yeah. going into this game. Yeah, and uh, and here they are, and they're one and three in this road trip. Uh, the pitching has not been good by any standard, um, and. They're losing ground in the wild card race. Now, they're still three and a half games ahead of Milwaukee. But they're now in third place But yeah, behind San Diego. San Diego's up a half game, and that yeah. was a, they were two games ahead of the Padres not too long ago. And uh, the, they come home. They've got some games here. Atlanta comes here, I think, mid-month, and they go to Atlanta as well. Yes, yeah. So, look, I mean, there's no other way to frame it, Rob. It's put-up-or-shut-up time here. Um, and if they don't – if something were to happen where they fall out of the playoff – picture and and don't make it um it would it would be the the worst outcome of any that we've seen over the last few years since they became competitive again all right so does rob thompson keep his job if they don't make the playoffs because everybody said they they should have signed him immediately after they went on that nine game win streak i guess it was yeah because we can't allow a full baseball season to play out no of course not we have to react after every game exactly um it's one of the things that i know i sound like a, a a really old crotchety guy here but it's one of the things that i really dislike about sports coverage now is that we treat every single small moment whether we're talking about a play and at bat a game as if it is the be all and end all and reveals everything and you need to take a step back often and just see the bigger picture and we don't do that often enough well that's part of sports talk radio so we provide an, uh, a forum for this yes yeah it's exactly event right. about stuff like this which Sorry. is good all right so the eagles uh start in detroit on September 11th, a week from today. And I've been hearing a lot of people praising Howie Roseman for all the moves they made this week, the cuts and all that, the uh, pickups, uh, mm-hmm. the guy they traded for, the safety they traded yeah, for, the guy, the guy they traded. Does he deserve as much grief for drafting Jalen Rager as he does praise for trading for him? <laughs> it, trading a, him? Yeah, look, um, Howie's very good at erasing the mistakes that he makes. He really is. And... In fairness to him, if you look at how the Eagles have drafted over the last few years, um, he's acquitted himself pretty well. I mean, you're talking about Jordan Maialata, you're talking about Dallas Goddard, Avante Maddox, you know, there have been Devontae Smith, you know, the perception that how he misses an old, can't draft and can't find talent isn't entirely accurate. The flip side of that, of course, is that when he does miss, it's you know it's it's a fairly significant miss and Jalen Rager was one especially because Justin Jefferson went immediately afterwards so um, look you know people people acted like Jalen Rager walked the streets of Philadelphia punching babies in the face and he just wasn't he just shouldn't have been a first round draft pick that's all there is to it um, so he, they got something for him that's great it doesn't mean he was a smart draft pick to begin with well one of the things that always annoyed me about the Andy Reid era. 
uh, with Joe Banner and all those other people who are involved there, was when they would say, well, we just filled a need by drafting a guy. Well, you just created a need by cutting a guy or, or drafting a guy that wasn't very good, so you had to fill a need. Don't praise yourself for filling a need after you created one. Yeah, and the other thing is don't necessarily think that you filled a need simply by drafting a player, right? right? Like a couple of years ago, they trade up to go after and, and get Andre Dillard. Um, and as it turns out, Andre Dillard, while not a bad player, you know, obviously broke his arm and, and is not going to be available for a while, but he's not their starting left tackle. And he's a guy that they moved up to get. And, but you watch a coverage of an NFL draft, whether you're talking about like the national perspective or if you hone in on your team that you care about, we give these draft grades as if they mean something. And, and they never do because you don't know how these players are actually going to perform once they get to the National Football League. Well, we live in an age of instant gratification yeah. where we have to know right away yeah. how I mean, we're doing. Look, the most significant NFL player of the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years was the 199th pick in the 2000 draft. And he only got a job because the other guy got injured. Right. Yeah. So what are we talking about here? Um, you know, and... In fairness to the Eagles, look, they have they do have a really good young core. Um, they filled whatever holes on paper needed to be filled uh, this past offseason. I think it's it's totally reasonable to have high expectations for them as a 11-12 win team. Let's see what the quarterback does with these weapons. Let's see what the defensive coordinator does with more talent on that side of the ball. Let's see how Nick Sirianni adjusts to teams and opposing head coaches adjusting to him based on his first season right. should they have waited to trade Rager or did they trade him at the right time waited uh, during the season for somebody to... that, that's fine yeah. yeah um look you know I don't know what role he was going to fill I presumably he was going to return punts for them I guess which he and, wasn't very good at right and I mean I'm, I'm kind of a, <clears throat> pardon me I'm kind of an outside the box thinker when it comes to certain aspects of special teams if I were the Eagles I wouldn't put a punt returner out there you don't have somebody like a Deshaun Jackson or, if you remember, Dante Hall with the Kansas City Chiefs who was a danger to, number one, was a danger to score a touchdown every time he touched about Darren Sproles? Darren Sproles is a perfect example of that kind of guy, but also the kind of guy who does something else that is really valuable, right? Deshaun Watson was, a, was an elite deep receiver. Dante Hall played wide receiver. Darren Sproles was a running back and a receiver out of the backfield. The Eagles don't have anybody like that on their roster. So it didn't to me it didn't make sense to keep Rager just to be a punt returner. You're burning a roster spot on a guy who does this niche thing that you don't necessarily need. What is your position on Devin Allen? Who I find him intriguing because he's obviously he's a world class hurdler. He's a would have been world champ had they let him run. Yeah, uh, and he looked, he made the most spectacular play of the preseason. Two spectacular plays: one on uh, one catch in a football against third stringers, mm-hmm. and the other was uh, on special teams. Yeah, look. We always get intrigued, you know, I, I joked on social media the other day that they ought to give a, um, there ought to be a Billy Hess Memorial Award. <laughs> um, for those of you longtime Eagles fans, you remember Billy Hess. Went to Westchester. Went to Westchester, had an incredible training camp and preseason with the Eagles in the late 80s. Um, became this darling of, hey, is he going to make the team? And he didn't make the team and, and, you know, I think lives in the Lehigh Valley now, but... We, we fall in love with these kind of receivers, you know, whether it's Paul Turner or Hank Baskett or people like that. They become kind of... Gizmo Williams. Gizmo. Folk heroes. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. That's a good, great That's another there. one. Yeah. Um, 
but Devin Allen is not going to be I mean he might be a gunner on special teams he's also 27 years old and hasn't played football hadn't played football in six years so you can look at it in one of two ways you can say well okay give him a chance and he'll get accustomed to playing football again or are you really going to use a roster spot on a guy who hasn't played football in six years he so. looks like he can play though he maybe a little he, bit. He and looks maybe, like he's most most of the uh, the track guys are just like guys that run up and down. He right. looks like he actually wouldn't mind contact. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think that's true. Um, like I said, I think he was an interesting story to people because of his background and because what he was trying to do was so unorthodox. Um, but is, is this season going to come down to Devin Allen? No, it's going to come down to whether Jalen Hurts can get the ball to AJ Brown and Devontae Smith and you know take the step forward that. The Eagles need him to take if they're going to compete for a Super Bowl. All right, back to Howie. Can we wait and see whether all the pieces fit well, on offense and defense where we say what a great job he did? Absolutely. We, we have to say now that, no. oh, Howie's tremendous. No, we don't have to say anything now. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting ways to look at this is that if you're Jonathan Gannon, if you're the, def- you're the defensive coordinator, you know, I know it's a big topic of conversation on, on this station, you know, how good is Gannon really? And... Is he playing such, you know, did he play such conservative coverages and schemes last season because that's what he's naturally inclined to do? Or is it because that was the personnel he had? And so when you can't generate a pass rush, once Brandon Graham tears his Achilles, you have your safeties standing in the Jetro lot so that nobody, so they keep everybody in front of them. Uh, I get that. The Jetro lot, that's... that's (laughs) You know, outside, outside the stadium. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, you know, nobody's going to get behind the Eagles' safeties because they're that far back. Um, but that's not the situation now. You've added Hassan Reddick. You've added defensive backs. You signed Kazir White. You drafted Nakobe Dean. There's more depth defensively. So Howie and, and the front office, in a way, have kind of insulated themselves from the criticism that, well, you're not giving your defensive coordinator anything to work with. The other side of that, if you're Gannon and it doesn't go well, is you can say, well, I'm trying to assimilate all these different pieces quickly. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about remembering previous Phillies disasters and, and you know, teams that fell apart. I think everybody uh, who doesn't have short-term memory loss around here remembers the Dream Team in 2011 and the idea that, you know, the Eagles went out uh, and signed all these guys in the wake of the NFL lockout and uh, Namdi Asamoah Dominic Rogers, Cromartie, and Jason Babin, and this is going to be awesome. And Vince Young was the guy that said dream team. Right, and it did not work even a little bit. And so, you know, I'm somebody, it sounds like you are too, Rob, where you're just kind of, yeah, let's let's wait and see. Let's Let's just hold the phone. On paper, they should be really good, but paper doesn't matter much. What was the record of the dream team? Do you remember? Uh, in 2011, they went eight and eight. Eight and eight. And yeah. then the following year, 2012, they went four and twelve. They were, I think, they were three and one, and then lost eleven and twelve. Yeah. And the you. one game they won, I think, was Nick Foles uh, throwing a touchdown pass in, in Tampa. Yeah. Tampa Bay. The legend was born that day. It was. And who knew that Nick Foles would be, <laughs> would be the savior eight years later, or hey, four, five years later, whatever it was. You're talking to the guy who, uh, in December of 2017, I was at the Coliseum in Los Angeles when Carson Wentz tore his knee up, and the column I wrote that day was, "Well, there goes the Eagles' season because <laughs> they just lost the prospective MVP and their most important player." Uh, so it was nice while it lasted, but. You know, so much for those Super Bowl dreams. <laughs> well, my theory was they could get to the Super Bowl because mm-hmm. Nick Foles, because the competition in the NFC wasn't as great. Nick Foles could step up when he needed to, but they couldn't win. 
Well, I mean, yeah. nobody thought that. I, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, I think the general consensus was that they were going to have a tough time with this Tom Brady fate. and Bill Belichick. This is our fate. We finally get a team that can play, and mm-hmm. then this this happens. Yeah, but but the flip side of that again was, you know, the Eagles all season had been wired to be the kind of team that would beat the Patriots because they had conditioned themselves to perform well in the situations that a team needs to perform well in to beat Brady and Belichick. I'll, I'll never forget, uh, after co- having covered that Super Bowl and then watching the NFL Films replay of it, and there's this amazing clip that NFL Films got from the Patriots' sideline of James White, the running back, when the Eagles are going to go for it on fourth and goal and they're about to run the Philly special. James White can't believe that they're going for it. He, he just can't get over this. And then, of course... Trey Burton throws the touchdown pass to Nick Foles, and James James White's just incredulous. He can't believe this. And I always chuckle when I see that because anybody who had watched the Eagles for any significant length of time that season was not surprised that they would go for it yeah. in that situation. They had done it all year. It was old hat to them. And so that, to me, was a big reason why they won that Super Bowl was that they they were ready for the positions they needed to put themselves in to win that game. It's a lot more pleasant than the last time they, the, the Eagles played the Patriots in the Super Bowl when the sideline thing with Bill Belichick is, wait a minute, are we ahead? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, they were couldn't figure out why the Eagles were moving so slow. Right, and, and, and a really good contrast in that the Eagles came out like gangbusters in that game. Even though it was 7-7 at halftime, they really dominated the first half from a, from a you know play standpoint and ended up gassed in the second half. Um, and, and part of that was because they were so pumped at the start of the game. You know, Andy Reid talked about this later and Belichick has talked about this in the years since that they were just, they kind of burned off all their energy too fast. And the Patriots having been there before knew how to handle the buildup, the long halftime, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then one could also make an argument that the Patriots were cheating too. So. <laughs> I think some that. Eagles have still made that argument oh, yeah. that, that they're yeah. cheating. All right, when we come back, uh, I want to ask you a, a couple questions, an age-old question about whether uh, – well, I'll wait till we come back about okay. that. And another question about uh, philosophy, which uh, you discussed on the – you were asked this on the morning show a couple of days ago. Yeah, I, I, I ended up reading from um, – Descartes and Kant and <laughs> Nietzsche. And, yes, uh, yes. We're going to get into a couple questions when we come back. Our number is 215-592-9494. Rob Cherry in for Glenn Macknell with Mike Sielski. WIP Sports Time is 1041. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back 3. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 215-592-9494. Our number is Rob Cherry in for Glenn Mack. Now with Mike Sielski on a Saturday morning, Labor Day weekend. 
Used to be they started football season Labor Day weekend. They started football season Thursday night, I think. Um, yeah, before Labor Day. Yeah, yeah. School starts before Labor Day in a lot of places now, too. Th- that I do, the, the whole school before Labor Day here, I don't understand. I, you know, Other it, places, I know it's been happening for years. Yeah, I, I'm not crazy about it. Um, for one thing, my kids are not going to have a full week of school, I think, the first three weeks of the semester. Uh, it's either going to be four days, you no. know, because of either labor day jewish holidays things like that so um and it just feels like the summer is so much shorter so did you like the labor day weekend opening of football season or i I assume they moved it back because people were some people were still on vacation they wanted to get the maximum viewership yeah i i I think labor day i feel like labor day is supposed to be the end of the summer you know boom that's it now we're making the transition to the fall this is honest to god my favorite time of the year um once the weather starts to get a little cooler i still feel like I'm going to be going to classes somewhere, whether at LaSalle. And or, you look forward to going to classes? I, I did. See, I, I hated it. I hated the fall because it was the end of the summer. Now, I've, I've since I've worked here 30-some years, I love it because football season is the best time to be here. Yeah, and I was, I'll, I'll be up front. I was a, I was a nerd in school. I yeah. liked school. Um, I liked going back. Um, and it was also, you know, the beginning of football season, the end of baseball season, or the Phillies in any sort of a playoff race um, before you know what the Flyers and Sixers will be starting. And that I just I always feel like September is actually the real new year as right. opposed to January. All right, let's get, get, get a couple of phone calls in here. Neil in the Northeast, you're a 94 WIP. Hey, Mike. Well, you know, definitely uh, New England with the 511 yards of offense in the in this Super Bowl, you know, they yeah, – you know, that was a back-and-forth game, one of the best in Super Bowl history. You know, when yes, they it won. was. Yes, it was. I was there. I had, a, um, uh, I had to file a column within five minutes of the game's end, uh, and I had an, basically three-quarters of a column written about the, how the Eagles had won the game, and Alshon Jeffrey had guaranteed they were going to win, and they had fulfilled his promise, and then Brady drove the Patriots to that go-ahead touchdown with, what, six, seven minutes left. Yeah. Right. And uh, I was dying a thousand deaths in the press box, not because, you know, I wanted the Eagles to win because I was a fan or something. I wanted the Eagles to win so that my column would hold up and I wouldn't <laughs> have to rewrite the whole thing in five yeah. minutes. And uh, yeah. so thank goodness for Zach Ertz and Brandon Graham. Yeah, yeah. Brandon ran script and even Brady's ball at the end, you know, for finally being incomplete like the last play of the game. Yep. Yep. Do you have a question, Neil? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I like, you know, like Howie's moves, you know, like that. And I, I think, uh, you know, Rager, the, you know, get, to get a couple of draft picks for him, I'm glad that they, ha- you know, happened. And, and I, I think maybe, and you know, it, it's intriguing, like Allen and Kane, you know, they have, like, depth on the practice squad just in case anything happens to receivers. I'm wondering... Uh, who you think um, does the returns maybe in kickoffs or, or punt returns? I think Did they try Boston Scott like when punt returns and maybe uh, um, does, um, you know, does um, for um, kickoffs? Well, here's what Quez, I... Quez, Quez Yeah, Quez. Here's what I think. The kickoff is, pardon me, it's an easier thing to handle. It is a little bit easier to be a kickoff returner than it is to be a punt returner. I think they're going to end up signing somebody probably... To return punts, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't see anybody on the roster now who jumps out. And when I was there on Thursday when Nick Sirianni was asked about this, and he didn't even give a name. He didn't suggest anybody. As I kind of hinted at with you earlier, Rob, I would not put back anyone to return punts. 
I think unless you have somebody who is incredibly great at just it, let it bounce. Just let it bounce. Did you Not ever even see a fair catch? Did you see the movie Moneyball? Yeah. Okay. There's a scene in there where Brad Pitt slash Billy Bean is talking about he's talking to his players on the Oakland A's, and he says when the other team lays down a sacrifice bunt, just pick up the ball and throw it to first base. Don't try to be a hero. They're giving you an out. Take it. I feel that way about returning punts. Again, unless you have Deshaun Jackson, the other team is giving you the ball back. Just take it. Let it bounce. Let it bounce. Even if it goes 20 yards or 30 yards. Let it bounce. Because, as we saw, for instance, last year in the playoff loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, there is a lot that can go wrong in those situations. And unless you have a player who is a difference maker in that role, and the Eagles do not, just take the ball back whenever they're, the other team wants to give it Has to you. Has anybody in the history of the NFL ever not had a punt returner? Just let, let it bounce. I covered a game when I was working in New York uh, back in 2013. I was covering the Jets at the time, and the Jets played up well, in Well, of course the Jets would do that. Well, it was a strategic thing because right. the conditions that night, it was, a, it was a very rainy night in Foxborough, and the Jets, similar to the, the Eagles, didn't really have a, a guy who was a clear-cut, terrific punt returner. So they didn't have anybody back there, and they tried to block a punt every time the Patriots got the fourth down and were going to kick the ball away. They didn't block a punt, but it didn't hurt them either. And I think this is one of those things in sports where it's like, well, we've always done it this way. We've always had a punt returner, so why would we change that? Well, maybe there's a reason to change it. Think outside the box a little bit. Well, the Jets aren't the organization I would follow, though. For something no, like that. but it, it didn't kill them in that game. It right. didn't hurt them in that game. They didn't win, though, did they? They lost like 13 to 10, yeah. something like that. Um, and, and look, I get it. Like I remember where I was when Deshaun Jackson pulled off the miracle of the Meadowlands 2 as well. Um, and that was an amazing moment. Uh, but given wasn't the, that three? It wasn't Westbrook's 2? You're right. It was, yeah, that was, so that it was three. three. I was yeah. at Westbrook's as well, which was also a punt return. So I understand where people are coming from with like, oh, you wouldn't have those great plays if you didn't have a returner back there. But the Eagles don't have a Brian Westbrook or a Deshaun Jackson. So make the best with what you got. Scott in Florida, you're on 94 WIP. Hey, fellas. Mike, I was interested when you said, oh, goodness, when uh, when uh, Carson got hurt. And I, I called up. I went to Harrison, but then I went out. I'd never been at West of Hershey, and I ended up at uh, University of Arizona. So I've always been an Arizona fan, uh, but I'm from Philadelphia, so I've always been a Philly fan. And I called up Howard, and I said, hey, Nick Foles just got his uh, Christmas present early. And Howard, like, poo-pooed it, like, you know, you're out of your friggin' mind, you know. And... Uh, so anyway, it did turn out, and uh, I have to say, the I, I, I was elated, but I do feel that Super Bowl was the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. The few things that happened leading into it uh, made it so that that one day Nick had his best, uh, best game ever. I, I, think, I think the uh, go ahead, Scott. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I I think that is the perfect Philadelphia sports moment. I think um, the fact that it was Nick Foles. Uh, the fact that it's the backup quarterback coming in there to beat the best quarterback of all time and the best coach of all time, uh, I, I don't know that that will ever be topped in terms of uh, if you wanted a Philadelphia team to win a championship, that is the way you would want a team to win Doug a championship. Doug Peterson outsmarting Bill Belichick. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think your point is well taken. As far as Howard goes, he is inscrutable. So, uh, you know, 
Uh, there's well, there's no telling what he's going to say or how he's going to come down on something. Yeah, this year's team, though, I must say um, a few things I've noticed, one of which is uh, Fletcher Cox it seems uh, more upbeat. I don't know, he looks thinner to me, but, um, you know, there, there's just uh, the whole uh, chemistry in there with adding a few young people into the defense, I think, and then uh, Brandon getting back and stuff like that. Uh, I'm very optimistic, and and they all. The other thing I think is, uh, and they don't have to be this way, but they all really respect uh, um, Hertz, and they're not dummies. So they they have to respect them for a reason. So uh, we just got to wait. We can talk about it all we want to, but fortunately, uh, next week, uh, uh, the proof will be in the pudding, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to a lot of positive things happening. Thanks for the call, Scott. I'm I'm really intrigued about this season, and and Hertz to me is a really interesting um, case study in the value of a quarterback in the modern NFL. Uh, I've said this before that if this were like 1989 or 1991, there would be very few people saying, "Well, of course, you know, the Eagles should move on from Jalen Hurts, right?" Because back then, I think we placed those of us who followed football placed a greater emphasis on the leadership qualities of a quarterback. Now, because of the salary cap and fantasy sports, there's so much more of a discussion around the quarterback's physical attributes. Can he make all the throws? Does he throw in rhythm? We get very technical in terms of how we're evaluating a quarterback. And on some of those qualities, Jalen Hurts is not up to, or at least hasn't shown that he's up to, a Patrick Mahomes, a Justin Herbert, a Josh Allen, an Aaron Rodgers, the very, very best in the NFL. And it's really going to be a difficult question, I think, for the Eagles to answer because they're going to have to make a decision at some point whether to pay Jalen Hurts a lot of money to keep him here or to potentially move on if he's if, if he's not quite as good as they would hope he would be. Right. The Eagles quarterback back then, 1990, was Randall Cunningham, yeah. who was not a prototypical quarterback, and then he ran, I think he ran for 947 yards, something like that season. Yeah, yeah, something and like passed that. passed for 30-some touchdowns. Right, but but Randall at the time, I mean, he was the NFL MVP one yeah. year. He was a spectacular player at quarterback. I think to, to Scott's point, Hertz has the intangibles you know, and then some in what you would want as a quarterback. The question is, now that he's got better weapons around him, whether you're talking about A.J. Brown, you know, Devontae Smith in his second season, Dallas Goddard, can he do all the things that a quarterback in the modern NFL needs to be able to do physically to help his team win games? But would you say Randall had leadership qualities? Talk- uh, not as much as Hertz. No. no, no, and that's what I think. That's what separates Hertz, and what that's why Hertz has perhaps a higher ceiling. Although I thought Randall was the best Eagle quarterback ever, my mm. opinion. Uh, Hertz has a, a big, a high ceiling because he's got all this other stuff. He just has to work on his arm and his throwing. Yeah, it's th- that to me is the whole key. You know, is he going to throw with anticipation? Uh, you go back to that. <clears throat> pardon me, that Tampa game. And I think we've all seen that replay where there's the the interception that Hurts throws late in the first half where Devontae Smith breaks open and is wide open. Right. And Hurts is a second late getting rid of the ball and it allows the safety to come over and pick the pass off. You can't make that throw this year because the expectations are too high, the weapons are too talented, the offensive line is there, the defense is better. If they're losing games or not playing as well as they could because of Jalen Hurts, 
they're not going to make a change this season, um, but they're positioned where they could. Yeah, after, after I, this I think they audition players every year in the NFL, even if they have long-term contracts, just just the way it is. I think Hertz especially is auditioning for his job again for the second straight year. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. And and he, to his credit, dismisses those questions, which is what someone in his position ought to do. But it doesn't mean that those questions go away. But he seems like he's mentally strong, that that stuff really doesn't bother. No. He's and, not just saying that. No, I, I think that's true. Uh, his teammates are unflagging in their support to the point that uh, I wonder if Nick Sirianni in particular maybe goes overboard a little bit, um, but they, they like him and respect him. There's no doubt about that. All right, I didn't get a chance to ask you the two questions. we got a break here, so we'll do that in the 11 o'clock hour, which will also feature the uh, This Day in Eagle History because something very interesting happened oh. on This Day in Eagle History. You're going to have to demystify me. Just a few years ago. Uh, also, uh, what we're watching. Yes. You have something you're I, watching. I have a good... A good uh, Local tie-in to what we're watching. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four WIP Sports Time ten fifty nine. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. Rob Cherry in for Glenn Mack now with Mike Seals. At some point, Mike, I want to discuss your new book project, which uh, sounds great. Found uh, I find fascinating. A couple questions I have to start the hour. Then we'll do uh, this day in Eagle history. There's one particular item that I thought was fascinating. Well, the questions. Are these? Uh, this is the dilemma that we've had, I guess, in Philadelphia for years. That we used to pose this question years ago at WIP before they won a Super Bowl. Would you rather have ten years of contending or one Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were Glenn and I were talking about this uh, a little bit last week. I, I opt for the ten years of contending. Um, I think most fans, whether they want to admit it or not, actually feel that way. That my theory is that most fans enjoy the ride. They want, for all the heat that Andy Reid took, for instance, when he was the head coach here, uh, head coach here, those seasons in 2000, 2001 through four, when they finally got to the Super Bowl, that team was really good every week. And so every game mattered. I think the flip side of that, the, you know, do you want to win the Super Bowl once and, they, and then be irrelevant for the nine years thereafter? I don't think most people want that. I I think they want to feel like they are going along for the ride, and contention is what people really want. Yeah, but people wanted at one point to feel like a champion, to feel like the yeah. team finally, and they did in 2017, obviously. Since then, they've made the playoffs several times, but they've never gotten close. Right, and and I think it's it's generated, I always kind of chuckle when I speak to friends of mine, either in the sports media or who aren't, from outside the Philadelphia area, who suggest that like well the Eagles won the Super Bowl or back in 2008 when the Phillies won the World Series so that dark cloud of negativity that so hangs over Philadelphia must have lifted now and it's like no you don't understand Philadelphia it's, like, it's back <laughs> it's it, they want more of that we want more of that you know the, the Phillies gave us a taste the Eagles gave us a taste and we want it we want to taste it again and um, that that feeling never kind of goes away so the contention is what you're looking for. The feeling that there's a chance, uh, I think, is what really drives interest in sports. Yeah, imagine here in 2022, the Phillies hadn't won in 2008. The Eagles hadn't won in 2017. How would we feel? We'd oh. never know what it felt like yeah. to be to cover a champion or to root for a champion. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, my gosh, Rob, we, we could do a, a PhD thesis about the, the thinking and the feeling and the mentality of Philadelphia sports fans. I think it's changed a little bit over time. But it's always a topic that I just find totally interesting in the way people 
approach sports in this city. It's amazing to me. Well, you're welcome. It's an idea for your next book. All right, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) All right, so the other question I want to throw, and it's for you, it's also for the audience. It's a question you were asked when you were on the morning show, I think it was Thursday? Yeah, I think so. Thursday on the morning show. Uh, And I want to ask our audience as well. You were asked about whether you would love to be at the U.S. Open Mm -hmm. to cover Serena's last hurrah. And your answer was? My answer was, I wouldn't mind, I would enjoy doing it, but I'm not sure how much interest there is to a Philadelphia viewership or readership in the U.S. Open, even with Serena Williams uh, making a run and potentially playing there for the last time. All right, so the question I have for our listeners and your readers as well, paper in, in the paper, is there an athlete or a sport you wish we would talk about more on the radio or have us write about, have Mike write about more in the, in the uh, newspaper? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting question, Rob. We were, we were talking about this before the show in that when you... When you're deciding, when you're in our position, right, and you're deciding what to talk about or what to cover, you often don't know that you should be talking about or covering a thing until that thing happens, right? Like, no, maybe nobody's playing, paying attention to the Masters one year, but all of a sudden Tiger Woods enters and goes six under the first day. And Tiger Woods has no connection to Philadelphia, nothing tangible anyway, but it becomes the thing that you're talking about at barbecues or with your buddies having a beer or whatever the case may be. And if you're not already there, if you're not anticipating that that might happen, you're left out. Um, And I don't know how many stories there are like that for us in the Philadelphia area because we are so parochial, because ratings for the teams here are so high, and generally speaking, Ratings here for big national sporting events, whether you're talking about the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals, tend to be lower than they are throughout the rest of the country because we care so much about what's going on here. But there are some stories that just transcend everything. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And some of them... I'd be curious to hear what people have to say about that because that's a... um, I'm curious to know what those stories are. Yeah, what, do, what is Mike not covering? What is the Inquirer not covering? Or what are we not covering at WIP that you would like to hear more about? Yeah, tell us how we're messing up and not doing yeah. our jobs well. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. Or let us, how do we do our jobs better? Yes. Instead of just talking about the Phillies and Eagles and Sixers and I guess once in a while the Flyers as well. Uh, all right, before we do uh, this day in Eagle history, I want to get Brian from Middletown on. Brian, you're on uh, 94 WIP. Hey, good morning, guys. Pleasure to speak with you. You too, Brian. Yep, and uh, that's interesting. You're talking about different um, issues to cover because, you know, in the social media era, obviously you can kind of get the news you want, the sports coverage you want, by seeking it out. So, you know, I I think it just sort of changes the landscape of uh, sort of major newspapers and outlets. Uh, But that is an interesting question. And, um, Mike, I want to compliment you for your work on uh, Kobe Bryant, your writing. Oh, thank you, uh, Brian. I appreciate that. Yep. So now with that, then I have to come with some criticism. <laughs> Br- not, bring it, man. Bring it. <laughs> and it's not just towards you, really. I, I think it's they're covering the Eagles. It's interesting. I understand the focus on the quarterback, and he certainly has to be held accountable. But to me, the one person who seems to be getting a pass is Nick Sirianni. He's a guy who was hired. He's an offensive-minded head coach. He doesn't call plays. That's okay. But a part of your responsibility, and you saw this with Andy Reid, you have to develop a quarterback. Sean McVay showed that. And it's interesting, you dropped certain names of quarterbacks last season who clearly are better physically than Jalen Hurts. Uh, Justin Herbert, he didn't make the playoffs. 
Aaron Rodgers, he gets bounced in the first round. And again, I'm not, obviously, Hurts is not that level. The point is, head coaching matters. And for me, if Hurts does not succeed, because I actually see his success connected to Nick Sirianni, which everyone seems to talk about as if, well, Hurts is separate, and if that doesn't work, well, we just move on. Well, you move on, I think Nick Sirianni only gets one more quarterback. This is not an area where you're waiting for the head coach to get a Hall of Fame quarterback. That doesn't work. You have to develop a guy. So for me, I'm kind of interested in hearing your take on like how you're evaluating Nick Sirianni. Because I think Hurts can put up some big numbers, uh, just like Dak Prescott, just like Justin Herbert. And then you could be at the end of the season saying, well, darn, uh, maybe the head coach just wasn't good enough. Brian, thank you, guys. No, thank you, Brian. And I think you make a great, great point. And it's actually one that I wrote about in this offseason, which is, If you take a look at the head coaches that Jeffrey Lurie has hired during his tenure as the Eagles chairman, you had Ray Rhodes. Who was not his first choice. Who was not his first choice. He wanted Dick Vermeil, looked looked elsewhere. He was coach of the year his first year. Yes, he was. You had Ray Rhodes, you had Andy Reid, you had Chip Kelly, Doug Peterson, and now Nick Sirianni. Okay, Ray Rhodes' quarterbacks during his tenure as the Eagles head coach were Rodney Pete and Randall Cunningham, Ty Detmer, Bobby Hoying, not exactly a group of Hall of Famers. And Rand- Randall, at the at when the he had, he had basically checked out. He, he obviously got revived in, in Minnesota, but he had checked out, and it just didn't work. He was him right. and Gruden clashed, I guess. Exactly. Look at Andy Reid. Right, makes the smart decision to draft Donovan McNabb over the, our protest for Ricky Williams. <laughs> exactly. They stay together for what nine, ten years. Everything's hunky dory. Once they trade McNabb, and I'm not suggesting they shouldn't have traded McNabb. It was time for that to end. But then you get inconsistency. Well, you Kevin get, Cobb was the guy they drafted to replace him. Right. Kevin Cobb, Michael Vick. You know, Vick has a seven-week stretch in 2010 where he's incredible. Not quite as incredible the next couple of years. Three years after they trade Donovan McNabb, Andy Reid gets fired. Chip Kelly. Now, there's a lot you can say about Chip Kelly's tenure with the Eagles. But his quarterbacks were, again, Michael Vick, inconsistent and injured. Nick Foles played great. One year was not so great in 2014 before think, he got hurt. I didn't think he was that bad when he got hurt. Well, he he, he wasn't great. Let me put it no. that way. And then you have Mark Sanchez and Sam Bradford. Okay? Again, a lot of instability at that position. Kelly lasts less than three years. And again, the quarterback situation isn't the only reason he was fired. Doug Peterson comes in. You draft Carson Wentz. You have Nick Foles as a backup. Everything is great. But as soon as Wentz's relationship with the team falls apart in 2020... Not only do they trade Wentz, they get rid of Doug Peterson. I'm saying all that to say, as Brian mentioned, there is a lot at stake for Nick Sirianni here with Jalen Hurts. If Hurts does not play well enough where the Eagles say, okay, we're going to stick with him, or, you know what, Nick knows what he's doing, we just need to upgrade the quarterback, then eventually Sirianni's going to have to wonder about his future i'm not saying that's happening anytime soon well hertz is not his guy he didn't draft hertz he right. wasn't he was he preceded him right um but what i am saying is i think to brian's point brian might have said this explicitly and i think he's right it's not like they're going to cycle through a whole bunch of quarterbacks for nick sirianni jeffrey lurie doesn't do that he he gets a head coach that head coach gets a guy who they hope is going to work out and if it doesn't the quarterback may be gone, and the coach may be gone too. So 
Uh, it's really an interesting dynamic. And, you know, especially in the modern NFL where a coach can have a lot of power or not very much power. Look at the Rams, for instance, okay? Sean McVay comes in, and all of a sudden Jared Goff actually looks like a player who should have been the number one overall pick, except that in time it becomes apparent that, you know what? Sean McVay is kind of propping him up a little bit. So they trade Goff to Detroit. They get Matt Stafford in, who everybody would acknowledge is better than Jared Goff, and they win a Super Bowl. Uh, and all of a sudden, the offense that McVay has been running looks even better than it did with Goff. So, you know, sometimes it's not just is the quarterback good or not. It is, is the quarterback-coach combination operating at its highest level? and its greatest productivity, and we're not going to know that yet until the season starts with, yeah. with Hurts and Sirianni. Interesting you bring up all the uh, the quarterbacks since Jeff Lurie got here, own, uh, coaches quarterbacks, because the only one who actually got to pick his own quarterback was basically Andy Reid. Yeah. I mean, Doug, Doug, Doug liked— Doug did too. Yeah. yeah, Doug liked Wentz. He had a lot of input on that. Um, you know, and look, for a while it looked like it was working, you know, and— It was the best season ever by—best regular season ever by an Eagle quarterback. Yeah, it really was. He was, he was going to be the MVP, and— Everything that's happened since then, uh, understandably, like covers up that fact. But he was really terrific that one year. Right. Interestingly enough, that brings us to this day in Eagle history. Go for it. All right. So this day in Eagle, September third, twenty sixteen, the Eagles traded Sam Bradford to Minnesota for a first round draft pick in twenty seventeen. I remember that Howie Roseman had God. traded up from was it sixteen to eight to two? Yes, sixteen to eight to two to draft Carson Wentz. So Howie continued to clean up a mess that was left for him by Chip Kelly, by ridding him of Brad. Bradford was a terrible fit with it. it was it was he traded Bradford, or they got Bradford from St. Louis, with and a second round, or they traded Nick Foles and a second round pick. Yes. Now, having said this, is Sam Bradford a great NFL quarterback? No, obviously not. Having said that, the Eagles were seven and six in the games that he started and finished for them. That season, 2015, Bradford. Bradford. They finished the season 7-9, and nine, in part because Bradford missed several games right. with a concussion, I believe it was. Which is surprising that the guy would get hurt. The yeah, guy who exactly. missed two seasons with torn ACL. Exactly, exactly. And to me, I always I always chuckled um, and you know, laughed in the aftermath of the Eagles going after Carson Wentz and Bradford demanding the trade. Like People went apoplectic over Sam Bradford demanding a trade where it's like do you do do you all follow pro sports like the guy the guy can read the writing on the wall they he's drafted not, him number 2 overall yeah, not going to have him sit that long right Carson Wentz is going to play the job is Carson Wentz's Sam Bradford wants a chance to go play somewhere else any athlete in his position would do exactly the same thing and people acted like he was disloyal or wasn't tough enough the guy came back from like two or three knee surgeries he was tough enough. He just he got injured too much. He was not a, a good fit here either. No. But the reason why they traded him, because he was going to be the starting quarterback that yep. year, and Chase Daniel was going to be the backup. Carson Wentz would barely get on the field, if, if at all. But Teddy Bridgewater blew out his knee in Minnesota. I, I'm still skeptical about how long they would have waited um, before getting Wentz in there. Uh, the, the Chase Daniel move, I'll, I'll never understand. He is an all-time Hall of Famer when it comes to earning money in the NFL. Getting rewarded for getting, nothing. Yeah, getting rewarded for not being a great quarterback. Um, but kudos to him because he, you know, he, he he made a lot of money while he was here. 
So that that happened this day in Eagle history. They traded Sam Bradford and all this. All the give Howie credit for anything else. The fact that he cleaned up a mess, got a team to to win a Super Bowl. Yeah, with, with what was left for him by Chip Kelly was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was, and um, and I give him a little bit of credit. It's kind of like, do you want to do you want to blame him for setting the fire, or do you want to blame him for, or credit him for putting it out? Right, like they misread Wentz. They committed a whole lot of money and a whole lot of years to him, and then drafted Jalen Hurts, and he lost his mind and wanted to be traded. The fact that they are back to where they are now is perceived to be a playoff team and contenders is a credit to Howie Roseman and how he's reshaped them. Because they went into the, that contract thinking, like, Carson Wentz is going to be our guy for the next five to ten years. And they had to completely reverse course once he decided he didn't want to play here anymore. Uh, it's my contention they f- they fired Doug Peterson to appease Carson Wentz and didn't read the room that Carson Wentz didn't like Howie either. <laughs> I don't know I don't know how true that I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I, I don't know how true that is. Um, but I, I did write after the last game of that season. Uh, if you remember, it was the, the quote-unquote tanking game against yeah. Washington. Uh, and there was a report by ESPN's Chris Mortensen that Wentz wanted to be traded. Uh, they, and that was it. You got to you got to do it. You know he didn't want to play for Doug anymore. Wentz apparently had said, and or his representatives had said, and um, yeah, you had to do it. And it's 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 wild to think that's how it ended, given all the expectations and joy that accompanied Carson Wentz when he showed up. In most cases, when somebody says they want to be traded, you have no choice. Yeah. In Kevin Durant's case, they had no takers or, or not. No one's going to pay enough for him. Right. Right. And I'm I'm not even sure how um, aggressively the Nets were looking to trade Kevin Durant. I think it might have just been, yeah, sure, Kevin, we're trying to trade you, whatever. Let's get uh, Clay in Kansas City on. Clay, you're a 94 WIP. Hey, guys, how you doing? Hi, Clay. Um, you guys were talking about, and I, I've seen a lot of Jalen Rager. You know, I'm a Midwest guy, watch a lot of Big 12. I didn't like it when they drafted him, hmm. but he he really did. Something happened to that guy. Because, man, in, in college, he, he was really a difference maker on the field. He was fast. So, I, it I didn't hate it, but spinning him then for what they got for him, because, I mean, let's face it, we all thought they were just going to outright release the guy, because I don't think you could have brought him back into that wide receiver room. I mean, I don't know what your guys' thoughts on that are, but he just didn't fit. Yeah, I I think given the wide receiver room now, Clay, I mean, he was at best the fourth or fifth guy, um, you know, in terms of talent, in terms of, you know, uh, accomplishments, all that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you in that. They got more for him than I thought they would get for him. To me, he reminds me, um, and this is in some way unfair to the the person whose name I'm about to mention, he reminds me of Nelson Aguilar in this regard. When Aguilar was was with the Eagles for the first couple of years he was here, he struggled with drops, and he struggled with uh, the fact that physically he was not quite as uh, dominant in the NFL as he had been in college. And it wasn't until he took an off season and really like built himself up a little bit so that he was more athletic that all of a sudden he started getting to the spot on the field that he needed to be without thinking about it and catching the ball without thinking about it. And he didn't have to try so hard. And he talked about that that season and when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. And I wonder if Rager was going through something similar where he just felt like, you know, the difference between him and his competitors athletically was not nearly as great in the NFL and it hampered him in some way. Yeah, I, I would agree. And then 
I will say the roster is very deep. This year. I mean, it feels a little bit like the 2017 roster. It's really deep. And then the last comment I'll make, I have not watched tennis in 20 years. I've been watching Serena. I grew up in the 80s. I watched Jimmy Connors make his run at the U.S. Open. I mean, I watched last night, and but I won't watch again because tennis is kind of dead to me. It's boring now. So thanks, guys. Thanks. That's a Thank you, interesting comment, but I haven't watched a lot of tennis either, and I watched last night as well. Yeah. Um, well, on the men's side of things, you have – three you know the kind of the blessed trinity of men's tennis right in roger federer and uh jokovic and rafael nadal um so that's been pretty compelling you know one or two of those three guys is going to be there at the end usually um and look serena has been around and at the top of her sport for a long time um you know she and venus are compelling personalities and stories and so great um so so different from what the stereotype of a Tennis player. Tennis man. player once was. Um, so all of that works to their advantages. And I, I think, like we talked about earlier, Rob, like the whole idea of a once great athlete making a late career push or run, whether you're talking about Jack Nicholas at the 86 Masters or Tiger Woods a couple of years ago kind of making a comeback or Serena this past week, people eat that stuff up. And they should. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about what we're watching. WIP Sports Time, 1124. Oh, Larry David. Oh, yeah. I like that. Glenn recut that um, a couple of weeks ago uh, when I joined the show, and uh, I love it. I love the the almost famous reference, I am a golden god. Uh, It's one of my all-time favorite movies. So, uh, yeah, this has quickly become, you know, probably my favorite segment on the show that Glenn and I do. segment is called What We're Watching. It's sponsored by Guided Door and Window. Take advantage of Guided Door and Window's big summer sales event. Receive 40% off all windows and doors. Call 1-877-GO-GUIDA or visit com. Well, I, I can tell you what I've been watching is, is Serena. Serena. Yeah. So I've been watching the tennis. But it's not, It's I mean, the Open is a two-week thing, and, mm-hmm. and I think I'm done because Serena's yeah. done. <laughs> so uh, let's ask what you're watching. Sure. So, sure. so um, this past week, I, I've been, since, since starting on with Glenn, I've been uh, consuming one after another documentaries on Netflix. And they have a really cool... Uh, sports documentary series there called Untold. They did one a couple of weeks ago. Glenn and I talked about about um, the Manti Teo story from 2012 about how he got catfished, and that was really good. And I watched one this week called Operation Flagrant Foul, and it is all about Delco's own Tim Donahue, the referee, the referee who who bet on games uh, while he was with the NBA, play, you know, refing games in the NBA, and. I enjoyed the documentary, but it was kind of a hard watch from the standpoint that nobody in this documentary comes off well at all. And why and, should they? Right. And the the sleaze factor of the people who were involved um, in this operation to bet on games and Donahue's role in it. Uh, and in, really, Donahue comes off as the most corrupt and duplicitous one of the group. Um, you know, where he's kind of evasive asking, answering certain questions. Uh, he insists he only made about $30,000 from this whole arrangement, which was ridiculous. Um, there's some interesting kind of review and reveal where it's kind of implied that the NBA and David Stern in particular were the ones who leaked the initial story about the investigation of Donahue so that they can, could get out in front of it. Um, so it was an interesting watch, and of course, 
you know, you're watching this and you're seeing shots of Delaware County and you hear Donahue talking about the fact that Delco is the home to so many NBA referees. Oh, absolutely. You yeah. know, it's kind of a, a breeding ground there. Um, is he implying that others are involved? Or? He, he, there is a direct implication that a referee named Scott Foster uh, was involved in some way. Now, they, Foster was not interviewed for the doc, um, but the implication is very strongly there. And it does get you thinking about, it's, it's kind of that side of sports that we don't talk about and almost don't look at unless somebody like Adonahi comes forward and is actually truthful about it. Um, the question is, how truthful was he throughout this whole documentary? Uh, so it's a one-time... One- it's, one, it's about an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, it's worth sitting down and watching. Um, you know, They should have subtitled it like Player of Easttown or something like that, just because it's so Delco. It's so thick. Um, was it as good as Mayor of Easttown? I don't think so, no. 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 Um, I gave it three stars out of four, um, but the the reason i don't go higher than that is you're you're listening to these guys the ones in particular who were involved in the conspiracy to bet on games and and using donahue's inside information and you don't you're you're not 100% sure of how to separate fact from fi- fiction and truth from lie and that makes it a challenge uh, who, who produced this uh, that's a good question. It's it's part of a series that Netflix. It's a Netflix original series. Um, I don't know who produced it, um, but it, it's worth a watch. It is, especially for basketball fans around here. Right. There was a Netflix series a couple of years ago that the fellow Sal guy uh, produced. Matt Halley and the the work Tom Farrell on the workshop produced basketball or nothing. I don't know if you saw that. I, I didn't see it. Matt is a friend of mine. I apologize, Matt, <laughs> for not watching that documentary. I've been meaning to. Uh, I just didn't get around to it. But yeah, I've known Matt a long time. We overlapped a little bit at high, at uh, at LaSalle. And uh, he's very, very talented at what he does. Basketball Nothing was about a, uh, a Indian, Indian American, Native Americans in Arizona mm-hmm. f- uh, playing for a, uh, bas- a high school championship. Yep. Which And it's just a fascinating, fascinating series. It's, I think it's like six episodes. Yeah, Matt, Matt did a lot of great work. He was here um, at the ground floor when it started with Comcast Sportsnet. Yeah. Um, did a lot of great work for that network back when that network did a lot of great work. Um, so, yeah, um, i I've been meaning to check it out. I just haven't yet. It's on Netflix as well. Uh, that's about all, you know, like I said, Serena's and, and the Phillies. Yeah, you know, I have I have two kids under the age of 11, so I'm well, not what, watching. What, are they, what have they been watching? <laughs> <laughs> they watch a lot of Harry Potter movies. Um, we did watch, uh, back when it was in the theaters, um, the four of us, my wife and our two sons, went to see Top Gun Maverick. And that, honestly, is the best thing I've seen all year. Um, and you I liked just, the first one, too? I did, but this, this the sequel is better. The sequel is, is actually better. In fact... Uh, my two sons saw the sequel first, and then a week later, uh, I found the original Top Gun on Amazon Prime or something like that, and we watched it. And uh, at the end of it, they were like, that was good, but but the second one was better. Did they change the music or same music? Very Kenny similar. Kenny Loggins? Yeah. <laughs> no, Kenny. <laughs> they, they do play Danger Zone at the beginning of the sequel. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's got the perfect balance of like nostalgia for the first movie and then moving the story forward and... Once the movie's been out a while, I think you can, people who have seen it can more openly discuss what I think is the big unspoken twist in the middle of the movie, which I'm not going to say uh, on the air um, because not everybody has seen it yet, even though it feels like everybody's seen it. But uh, I think it's an instant classic. I, I just thought it was the coolest experience I've had in a movie theater in years. And you've seen the, uh, the Adam Sandler, the Basketball Scout movie? I saw Hustle and loved yeah. it. I, loved I it. did too. Some people didn't like it. I loved it. No, I thought it was really well written. Um, it has that one line that, you know, I'm sure has been repeated a thousand times since the movie came out, you know, 
Philadelphia fans are the worst. That's what makes them the best is that they're the worst, (laughs) something along those lines. Um, But, yeah, I loved Hustle. I thought it was great. Yeah, I thought it was very, very well done. And I I guess the complaint is you hear that, well, only people in Philadelphia would like it. No. I disagree. I think basketball fans everywhere would love it. I think it it hits all the right notes of Philadelphia. Uh, Great shots of the Maniunk Wall, and um, it it gets the city right. I wish I'd been an extra. Yeah, that, they it would have been cool. Town. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, that, that's uh, what we're watching. Is there an out cue for this, or just i uh, read this again? One more time. Uh, sponsored by Guided Door and Window. Take advantage of Guided Door and Windows' big summer sales event. Where is it, uh, receive 40% off all windows and doors. Call 1-877-GO-GUIDA or visit com. All right, back to the phones. Let's get uh, Jason in Westchester. Jason, you're on 94 WIP. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate it. You got it, Jason. Uh, so earlier you guys asked uh, what athlete or team you wish uh, or we wish that you guys would cover more on WIP, and I have to I have to chime in and be an advocate for a team right here in Philadelphia that gets absolutely no attention on WIP, unfortunately, and that would be the Philadelphia Union. Um, now, just a few statistics: the Union are currently number one in their conference. They just clinched mathematically a playoff spot on Wednesday. They have about, I think it's like a 14-goal differential higher than the team in second place. They've only allowed 21 goals the entire season, and they have a chance, a good chance, I think, of uh, before the Phillies, Eagles, Sixers, or Flyers of being the next Philadelphia sports team to win a championship. And I just, I think it's a shame that if they were to win a championship, they would maybe get a mention going into or out of a commercial break on WIP, and I think uh, I think that's a shame. Why do you think that is it doesn't get covered? Uh, well, I, I don't. I honestly don't know. I think there's a lot of people who just don't understand the, the nuances of soccer. I find it astonishing, personally, that people will call soccer boring, and then they will sit through a four-hour baseball game, personally. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I personally played soccer. I was a, an, an NCAA, uh, not NCAA, I'm sorry, PIAA soccer referee for five years. And my son and I, we go to Union Games regularly, and it is a really enjoyable uh, sport to watch if you understand it. So I think if more people understood the game, they would, uh, you know, you go to a Union game and the stands are packed. It is a popular sport. It's the number one sport in the world, really. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, it gets overshadowed by, you know, the, 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 uh, the more more covered sports, uh, the you know, the big four. And I just, you know, that's, that's my personal opinion. All right. Thanks for your call. We appreciate it. Yeah, Jason, I think there's a lot of merit to what you're saying um, in terms of the attention that isn't brought to bear. I, I have to admit, I, I have never written or covered a union match, but I do hear more and more from friends and people who I know in the Philadelphia area who love going to union matches, particularly parents, as Jason kind of alluded to. It's from what I understand, it's an incredible environment to bring kids. Um, the stadium is beautiful. The view is beautiful there. Uh, they do a great job of game presentation. And he's right. The union are 16, four and nine. They've outscored their opponents 61 to 21, which is the highest you know goal differential in the entire you know, Major League Soccer, they're unbeaten at home. Um, it's a great story. And I think there's it's it's interesting to think about like the way the fires caught on quickly when they when the NHL expanded here and the fact that the union haven't reached that kind of popularity. 
you know, you're comparing the late 60s, early 70s to the 21st century. But um, I wonder if there are factors there that overlap or, or really differentiate those two things. Well, interesting you bring up the Flyers, because we used to say this about, I mean, Flyers used to sell at all their games. Mm-hmm. But we used to say that the reason why we talk more basketball than hockey, the, the winter sports, is because more people care about basketball or played basketball then hockey was just like the people going to the games care about it, but nobody else seems to care much about it. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, not a great TV sport. It's a great, it's actually a very good radio sport, but it's also obviously one of the things you got to see in person because it's just tough to follow on TV. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I think, um, you know, I mean, gosh, we could take this any number of directions in terms of, um, you know, where people go to discuss sports nowadays, whether you're talking about a talk radio station, social media, um, texting with their friends, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, you know that certain things will move the needle. You know the Eagles are the big dogs in town. You know when the Phillies are good, baseball becomes very popular. We've seen what happens in the past when the Sixers make a run. You know, the 2000-2001 season with Allen Iverson, you saw Sixers flags everywhere. When when they got back to the playoffs with Embiid and Simmons, there was a charge, you know, in the region about the Sixers. So um, maybe it's simply a matter of time for the union that they will eventually become a, a bigger deal. Well, here's the deal. A lot of kids grow up playing soccer. A ton of kids grow up playing soccer uh, because soccer has become, you know, good a good high school sport. It's a good sport for kids to play, but it's still never caught on like baseball, basketball, and football. Yeah, yeah. But it's an interesting point about baseball, though. You're right. I mean, I've, I've, I don't pay as close attention to baseball as I once did, and the changes in the sport and the way that it's slowed down uh, are a big reason why. And maybe the fact that the national team is not that good. I mean, if there are a women's league, there have been women's leagues, the women's national team is, is better to follow than the men because the men are never in the World Cup. Yeah, that's, that's fair, too. Um, maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. All right, 215-592-9494. WIP Sports Time, 1142. 94 WIP, Rob Cherry in for Glenn Macknell with Mike Sealski on a Saturday midday. Now, joining us on the lines right now is Dr. Mark Pollard from Cooper Bone & Joint, so we can discuss some of the injuries uh, that we're concerned about. Mike, uh, what's the one that's got you most concerned right now? i, I got to ask Dr. Pollard about Zach Wheeler um, and this lingering soreness uh, that apparently, not apparently, is going to push back his start and Causing to be reevaluated, Doctor Pollard. Thanks for coming on. What are no, we? My to, pleasure. Yeah. What are we to make of this? Uh, how how alarmed should Phillies fans be? Um. Well, I mean, it's uh, always worrisome when there's kind of an injury that just doesn't seem to be able to go away. Um, from what I understand, he's had this has been kind of an ongoing thing. I, I thought that I heard that he had gotten an MRI previously. I thought it was his elbow. Yes, And obviously that's always a concern with pitchers. Um, But I thought he had an MRI that was pretty clean, you know, showing no structural damage. So that's always reassuring. But, you know, even if you have a clean MRI, that doesn't mean that you don't have symptoms. And, you know, the worry is, you you know, is there pain that's kind of showing up before there's anything visible on an MRI? And if there is pain, does it alter the throwing mechanics enough that he can hurt something else like his shoulder or something? So, you know, it, it is always concerning when something just doesn't seem to be able to go away. So, it, just for clarity, there was an MRI that showed inflammation. Um, you know, does, is that what you're talking about when you're saying the MRI is pretty clean, that, you know, no structural damage, but, you know, there is something going on there still? Yeah, I mean, you know, no. The the, the big concern would be is if there was, you know, a tear, like a torn ligament uh, is the most common thing, but also... 
you know, some of the area where a muscle attaches to bone can also kind of work its way loose. Um, and so those would be kind of the big structural things. Obviously, inflammation is, you know, nonspecific. It does show that something's going on. So something's happening to the point that, you know, the tissue is irritated enough to, you know, get, you know, extra swelling in it, which is what the inflammation is. So, you know, it's a, especially if, you know, that lingers after rest, that somewhat of concern. And they originally said 15 days, and they were hoping he'd be able to start September 6th. They've already pushed that back a few days. Is there any reason for concern for that? Is just that maybe something being a little cautious there? Uh, I think it's probably just an abundance of caution. You know, the, they, you know, everything, you know, have to take everything in the big picture. And if there's, you know, they want, they don't want this thing to kind of continue to linger if they get to the, you know, the end of the season push or the postseason, hopefully. And so, you know, they probably willing to sacrifice a few starts now to have him, you know, fresh and, you know, 100% later. Right. Miles Sanders, uh, ham- lingering hamstring injury. Uh, concern about something like that, uh, the fact that he still hasn't practiced? Not fully. Um, it depends. It's it's kind of, to me at least, it's tough to read how things are being handled, you know, in the preseason. You know, uh, some, you know, some teams don't really play their starters at all in the preseason and don't have them practice very hard, you know, again, trying to preserve them for the regular season, whereas other teams, you know, take the opposite approach, kind of like boot camp. Um, And so it's difficult to know what to make of it. Obviously, you know, a a hamstring injury that won't go away, you know, is is concerning because that's the kind of thing that can keep on, you know, getting aggravated and and that the timeline for, you know, full function can keep getting pushed back. So um, if it is indeed, you know, a, a hamstring injury that's significant, that's not getting better, that would be, you know, cause for concern. Uh, Dr. Pollard, one one other question I have. It's not about a local athlete, but uh, I was talking with a friend of mine about an injury uh, that uh, a basketball player had, lottery pick had. That, uh, yes, seems Chad like, Holmgren. Yeah, a Liz Frank injury. Is that something that uh, he was saying that it, it's a couple years before you can actually be yourself? Is that the type of injury that – you never fully recover from, or you can fully recover from, but it takes more than a year or so. Um, well, there's a spectrum of how bad a Liz Frank injury can be. You know, though that's referring to the Liz Frank joint, and which is kind of the the mid portion of your foot. You know, uh, uh, further up than the toes, but farther down than the ankle. Uh, some of the you know the small bones in the uh, in the foot, and so there's some strong ligaments that hold that together. Normally, they hold up, but it takes a lot of force to injure those, and that can be you know, a, it can be a devastating injury at times. And, you know, the recovery time can, depending on how severe it is and what treatment needs to be done, a lot of times surgery is required. And that can take a long time to get better, especially for somebody, you know, basketball, you can't exactly put like a stiff sole shoe necessarily on the foot and, uh, you know, like a lineman might be able to um, and just go forward as best you can. Uh, you know, that can, it can take a couple uh, a while, maybe even a couple of years on the outside. And if you're seven foot, is it a lot worse? Well, it stands to reason that the bigger you are, the the longer your uh, limbs are, the more force is going to be put on there. So, um, you know, that's probably contributed to it happening in the first place and also might make it a little bit more challenging to, to heal it up. Dr. Pollard, thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. 
Thank you very much. My pleasure. Dr. Mark Pollard from Cooper Bone and Joint. You know, you mentioned Liz Frank. Those are two of the worst words in professional sports. Um, Anytime you hear that an athlete has got a Liz Frank, you just say, oh, man. I remember, I think Deuce Staley had one. Yes, yeah, it was. Um, uh, Maybe Todd Harriman's with the Eagles. You see it frequently in football and in basketball. And every time I say to myself, oh, my gosh, that, that athlete's got a long recovery ahead of him or her to get back to where they want to be. And if you look at the frame of Chet Holmgren, he's seven foot, like 195, something. Yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't look like he's got the body that can hold up. And in a, in a what was it, a pro, uh, game in Seattle. Yeah, pro-am game, yeah, in Seattle. He just crumbled, uh, backpedaling, covering yeah. Uh, LeBron James. Yeah, and uh, he's going to miss the entire season. It's kind of a Joel Embiid-esque situation yeah. there. Uh, he could miss, too. Yeah. For all we know. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, all right let's go back to the phones here. Bob in Delran, you're on 94 WIP. Hey, yeah, I wanted to uh, make a couple of points. And I know with the younger generation, it's about social media. But if you're a professional athlete, and I spoke to, I think it was Ruben Frank that said something, and I asked him, can the coaches approach them and say, now a player can do anything he wants as long as it's you know ethical and not against the law. I get that. But a coach does have the right to say, hey, look, you're on social media a lot. We would prefer you not to be on it or reading it um, about yourself and the team. Other subjects, go for it. Because some guys can handle it, criticism, and others can't. Jalen Rager, my understanding of what I'm hearing, is he couldn't handle all the cra- all the stuff that we say and hear, and he just didn't have the discipline to shut it down. And some guys can do it, some guys can't. Yeah. And Good. And, and it's it, it's it's sad because maybe the kid has some talent, and he does have talent, obviously. I'm not saying it's going to be Justin Jefferson. But my point is this. There's got to be some way in the interview process for draft prospects that they can – and I know they're going to – that they got to describe Howie or whoever does the interviews for these prospects, say, look, we got a crazy fan base. <laughs> They're going to say things and hear things probably over and above or over the top. If you can handle that type of culture, welcome. If you can't, nothing wrong with that. We're nuts. We're crazy. You maybe want to go in another direction where the team's got to think, mm, I don't know about this guy. He can handle it mentally. How much does that play in them selecting a player? He can have all the talent, but if he lets all this crap that, you know, like talk radio, myself, media, some guys can't handle it, and yeah. they can't play here. Yeah, I think you make a great point, Bob, and I think the challenge with that is finding a procedure or an insight that allows a team to know whether a guy is going to be, an athlete is going to be able to handle playing in a Which tough is market. their job. When it, they draft a guy that high or they draft a guy, that should be part of their job. Markel Fultz is a prime example. I guess you could say Ben Simmons as well, but Markel Fultz especially. Yeah, but it's but it's a really challenging thing to figure out, right? Like, um, and and, I, and teams and franchises are getting better at it. You know, I mean, the example I always use in, in kind of in this regard is Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf was like a real debate before the 1998 draft, and Ryan Leaf has come a long way since he was that kid. But man, you can't find two personalities more disparate than those two guys and yet there was an actual debate about like well maybe ryan leaf would be a better pick than peyton manning and part of the reason leaf was a bust was that he couldn't handle simply the pressure of playing in the nfl and um it is something that 
gets discussed at that level amongst general managers, owners, coaches, all of that. Um, but the challenge is figuring out, like, is there a way to determine how an athlete is going to react in these high-pressure situations? And it's especially hard now with social media, as, as Bob mentioned. I mean, these athletes are just inundated with feedback. And if they aren't disciplined enough and can't control and manage that flow of criticism, it can get to them. Look at Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's on Twitter all the time. And it's one of those things that um, he allows to kind of seep into his brain and maybe, you know, it affects him in one way or another. Yeah, but is it unfair to say, well, can you handle Philadelphia? When it, it, This happens just about every city. It, now, nowadays so maybe, it does. Maybe a little more intense here, but it happens just about every city. Yeah, nowadays it does. Um, and it's something that teams – it's, it's an imperfect – science in terms of figuring out how to figure out what an athlete brings to the table mentally emotionally psychologically mentally they have to be strong yeah i mean obviously to get to a certain level they have to be mentally strong anyway but mentally they have to be strong to block everything out and not worry about what's being said about them right and and you don't know what they're going to encounter once they get to the highest level of their sport you know i mentioned earlier about nelson aguilar needing to physically kind of remake himself so that he could play with the same level of confidence and speed in the NFL that he played at in college. I think Markel Fultz was another example of that. I think I think part of the reason that Fultz got the yips over shooting the ball with the Sixers was that all of a sudden at the NBA level, he couldn't get to spots on the floor or get his shot off with the ease that he once could in high school and college. And he was a kid who had made a really fast rise from like his sophomore year of high school to his one year at Washington to being the number one overall pick in the draft. And all of a sudden he's at the first level of basketball that he's encountered where it's like, oh my gosh, these guys are bigger and stronger and can bump me off my spot. And what do I do about that? And physically he wasn't ready yet to counteract it. And it led to kind of a, a mental problem. For him. I watched tape of him and some other high school players back then, Bri- Miles Bridges and several others as well, that seemed like the top prospects. Mm-hmm. And watching them, I was like, this guy's the best of all. Of them. Yeah. But yeah. clearly, you know. Something went haywire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really did. And I feel bad for the kid. Um, and in some ways, to, you know, to, to Bob's point about this being a tough pa- place to play, I mean, there were people at Sixers games cheering for Markel Fultz to attempt. Oh, a yeah. three-point shot or a jump shot, which is both good and bad, right? On the one hand, fans are showing their support. They want him to do well. They understand that he is struggling with something. The flip side of that is it was kind of condescending almost. It was like, we're yeah. cheering you just for doing the thing that a basketball player like you is supposed to do. We're not bad fans. We're just, you know, yeah. trying to encourage in- you there. Our intentions are good, but yeah. maybe the it doesn't help as much as we'd like to think it does. 215-592-9494. WIP Sports Time is 12 o'clock. Uh, the 12 o'clock hour, Rob Cherry in for Glenn Mack now with Mike Sealski on a Saturday midday. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you about your latest project. Cool. Mike. So uh, before we get to that, and, and talk about your last project as well, uh, the Kobe book. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, be back uh, out in paperback soon? Yeah, it's, it's going to be out in paperback come January, January 17th. Um, there's uh, some good stuff ahead related to Kobe in the book um, that I can't get into any details about, but hopefully we'll be able to, to talk about that publicly soon. And uh, it was really a labor of love, the book The Rise, um, that I did about Kobe and his his early life that came out earlier this year. So and the uh, podcasts thanks. were great, too. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, I am Kobe. We got, um, you know, I know your ties to the local basketball scene, Rob. We got our hands on uh, 
tapes of interviews that Kobe did when he was 16, 17, 18 years old uh, that nobody had ever heard before. They were they were kept by a guy who, again, his name is probably familiar to people who are plugged into the local basketball scene, a guy named Jeremy Treatman, who had been a friend of Kobe's when Kobe was in high school, had done some was interviews He was a coach there as well. He was. He was kind of, when Kobe was at Lower Marion, Jeremy was kind of like the media relations guy, would set up all of Kobe's interviews, and the two of them had tried to do a book together. Uh, it didn't come off, bad timing and a few other reasons, but Jeremy kept these tapes. And were they cassette tapes? They were micro cassettes. <laughs> right. He had not found them in 20-some years. And as I was doing the research for the book, uh, I, I've known Jeremy a long time. He, he helped me with the book. And then a couple days before Christmas 2020, he was cleaning out his garage and he found the tapes on a shelf in his garage. And so I was able to take them, listen to them, weave that into the book, and then we turn them into this podcast where you can actually hear Kobe talking about his mom and dad and why he jumped to the NBA from high school and him taking Brandy to the senior prom and all kinds of really cool stuff. And it's a fat, and you can still listen to it on podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's still out there. You know, wherever you get your podcast, called "I Am Kobe." The book's still in stores on Amazon, all of that. So, uh, yeah, thanks for bringing it up. I appreciate that. All right, we'll talk about the uh, the new book in a couple of minutes. Let's get uh, run through some calls here. Doug in Coatesville, you're ninety four WIP. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, hey, Mike. Just to start, I wanted to say I often would tune in Saturdays uh, because of Ray and his professorial kind of vibe and. You sliding in and kind of keeping a very similar vibe really has been a, a, a difficult task, and congratulations on doing a great job on that so far. That's very kind of you to say, Doug. Thanks. Um, Ray's got, as I said the first show, Ray's got Bob Lanier-sized sneakers, and my feet are 23s. only 23s. Those are 23s. Yeah, my feet are only a size 9, so um, I'm just going to be me, and uh, I appreciate that very much. Uh, not a problem. You put, they, I think your shoes have probably grown to a ten and a half so far. <laughs> That's nice of you to say. So I was actually calling your question you posed about other sports that could be covered or things like that. I um, hits me sometimes. I will be listening, and I often listen to the afternoon show with Reese and Marks driving home from work, or I would tune in Saturday. And sometimes it just seems like we're repeating the same things about the Eagles and the major three sports. Um, and then the, the earlier caller mentioned bringing in the union, which is great, but the focus there is all pro sports. And I think there are a lot of sports fans that enjoy their college sports. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got a lot of great colleges in Philly. And if we spread it to, you know, Penn state or even Pittsburgh, there's a ton that's going on that could be a, probably would make a segment. I don't know if there'd be enough interest to keep it going, but I think it'd be something worth looking at of having a, you know, different things going on in our local sports teams that aren't the, the five pro teams and looking at the college sports. Doug, I think you make a great, no, I think you make a great point, particularly about college sports. And I would say particularly about Penn state. Penn state I, football. Yeah, yeah. I think the, we undersell both, at the station and certainly I think at the Inquirer, not that not that the people who have covered Penn State over the years for the Inquirer did a poor job, to the contrary, but I think in some ways the coverage of Penn State suffers for the overwhelming interest in the Eagles, um, that there's only so many resources a place like the Inquirer has 
to be able to devote to Penn State football. But man, there are a ton of devoted Penn State football fans in the Delaware Valley, and it probably does warrant more attention. Penn State had a, a, a lot of run, a lot of uh, championship runs under Joe Paterno. I think they won two national championships, mm-hmm. played for at least one or two others. Yep. yep. Uh, not quite as much, obviously, under James Franklin. Yeah, no, but still very, very popular. Um, still a national program that that commands some attention in that regard. And I think Doug's other point about the college sports, um, I think that was probably truer early in an earlier time where um, people who grew up in Philadelphia, they grew up with the Big Five, they might have moved outside the city but kept that connection to the city in a way that people growing up, I grew up, you know, in Upper Dublin Township, technically, but like Glenside, Jenkintown, that kind of area, a lot of college basketball fans there. But as people move in from other parts of the country, as the the circle kind of gets wider and wider, the the interest in the Big Five, I think, is diffused a little bit. The rivalries aren't as heated as they once were. And well, it's you also, one-sided. Yeah. I mean, the, the other factor is, and I've kidded him about this, uh, and I've said it in print. Jay Wright killed the Big Five. He did because he brought he t- it back together because he brought the round robin back, but destroyed everybody. Yeah, and it just took Villanova to a level that the other four programs and, and even Drexel aren't at. So, um, you know, do I think we should talk about that stuff more? I would love to. Um, the question is whether it drives interest in readers and listeners and all of that stuff. I think around March Madness it does. Yeah. But other than that, it doesn't seem to. And it's because there's just it's a one-team big fight. And I love Temple. I went to Temple. Love LaSalle basketball. But mm-hmm. it, Temp- it, it's been all Villanova lately. Yeah, it really has. Um, yeah. And, you know, to me, a really fascinating story to follow this coming year is going to be how Kyle Neptune fares as Villanova's head coach and the transition that Nova makes from the J era to whatever is to come. Or you could just go back to your old school, friend of you returning to LaSalle. How about it? It's uh, it, again, it's going to be interesting to uh, to watch what Dumpf does. I mean, he's the third time he's been a Big Five head coach uh, in one of the programs in the city, and uh, uh, I know there's renewed optimism because yep. everybody has the utmost respect for for Dumpf. Um, but it's going to be a challenge uh, at my alma mater. I would think so. Yeah, uh, Nick in Collegeville. Nick, you're a ninety for WIP. Mike, Angry Rob, how you guys doing? Great, Nick. So real quick, uh, Villanova. I mean, it's an important season for Villanova because, look, at the end of the day, it's a very small school, and it was Jay Wright and the wins they had in the last five, six, seven years that kept them in basically the top five eyeballs of the nation. If under this new coach they have an average, a below-average season, Villanova might just be forgotten when it comes to freshmen looking for a smaller school on a big time platform, so this is important for them. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's going to be interesting to see how Kyle handles this, what he keeps from what Jay did, what he learned from Jay, uh, and and where he might take the program moving forward. Um, because you're right, in some ways, it's kind of ironic, Nick. The national profile of Villanova was in some ways higher than the local. Always profile. higher. Yeah. Oh, it's always been higher. I mean, it's unbelievable how much higher the inter- the national profile is. By the way, I called real quick. You said uh, Mayor of Easttown earlier. You guys said that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it wasn't for what's her name as the lead actress, it, it was just a you know slightly above average crime story. In well, Delaware I County. loved it. I don't know why, but I Listen, loved it. I, I, I know you. Go ahead. I mean, ahead. I can name five other ones that are about the same or better, like Broadchurch. I know it's English. I know Glenn is a big England a uh, break. Mm-hmm. Tom, great crime guy, but it, it's 
it was good. I'm, I, I don't want. I don't want to say it was great. It was good. I mean, I can see how you would love it because you have we have a little more natural bias. I live in Delaware County and all that, but mm-hmm. I'm anyway, still, yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Kate Winslet fan too. Yeah, I'm a big Kate fan, mm-hmm. and and she did a great job. But yeah, like I said I can name five off the top of my head that are crime dramas as good or better. Gotcha. But um, now your philosophy of just punt returner. Yes, I get that. Listen, I get that on paper. But how about this? Let me give you this scenario. The uh, the Eagles' opponent are backed up, and they're on their two-yard line. They have to punt. You're putting a guy out there just to field it so it doesn't roll 80 yards, and then you're inside your own 20? Or do you do you just go, no, never, Chip Kelly, like, you would never use this guy ever, doesn't matter the circumstance? I think you would have to have the right guy to do it, and that's kind of why I bring it up is that I'm not sure that the Eagles do. Um, it's one of the trickier, more challenging roles to be filled on a team. Um, yeah. you, you can't just throw anybody back there and say, well, no, just catch, the, that, right? yeah, just catch Bloom, the ball. Boom from the Olympics, right. Exactly. Right. So, um, look, could that theoretically happen? It absolutely could. And it might be a chance that if a team wants to get creative, it's got to take. What's interesting about it, Nick, is there, there's a coach in high school. I forget exactly what part of the country, but he's... He's one of the top high school coaches uh, in the nation. His program is great, and he has never put a punt returner back there for this very I've, reason. I got to check that out. Yeah, um, yeah but, but you know what? Your point about yeah. when you're pinned in the end, in the end on the two yard line, you got to put. You have to have a punt returner. You I can't agree. let it bounce fifty yards or forty yards. But whatever. you can't change the field position on, yeah. on just long. It's like it's like roulette. You're rolling. You're rolling the. You're actually like dice. You're rolling the dice to see who gets the better bounce. But here's my here's my union thing. I sure. love soccer. I played soccer. My, I, I was in a state championship game when I was a senior, a, a junior in my high school. So I love soccer, um, but I don't watch a union. I've been down there for games. I bring my wife because I'm literally seven minutes away from the stadium. Mm-hmm. I'm in Brookhaven, so it's great to go down there. The guy was right; it's always packed. But like, if you watch if you watch MLS or, or any type of international soccer, like you're talking, you know, Division two school or three school versus. Pro football, it, it's it's a whole different thing. So it's cool. And what do people talk about soccer? I love it. But what I do people it. talk about? What do they discuss about soccer? You know, games? that's the whole thing. Like like we can X and O. You guys have been X and Oing football for the last three months. All right, which is absurd in my opinion. But anyway, you can do it and get callers all day long. Doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday rainy in February or a summer hot day in July. But what are you going to do with soccer? Even hockey. That's why it doesn't get covered. It's like. Oh, the blue line, you know, they got to hold the blue line more. Uh, you know, yeah. there's too much of a gap between the offensive line and your, your two defenders. Like, what, what are we going to say? Like, you can't. Yeah. Right. That, so. Nick, thanks. Thanks, Nick. That's a, that's a great call. Um, that's and a great a good, point. A great yeah. point, yeah. And, um, right, like, where's the controversy, right? Like, the union are really good, but we can't – I certainly am not equipped to break down a soccer match in the way that I could have been. Is anybody? Game. Is that even the people to go to the games? What are they going to – if you want to call, great. But what do you – what's the gist yeah. of the phone call? Yeah. They had a great game today? Great chance in the stands? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's – I mean, that's a great – that's a great point. Talk radio does thrive and rely on things that you can debate and discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, just to, to Kevin's uh, – um, Nick's point, excuse me um, – the coach I was referring to is named Kevin Kelly. He's been a longtime coach at Pulaski Academy in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's been written about nationally. He was on HBO's Real Sports. And while Nick makes a great point about what happens if you're pinned deep and you let the, 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 the other team 
punts the ball away and you let it roll, Kelly's argument is on average, um, it'll all even out that often the ball will bounce forward. In 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 totality, you're really not losing that much in terms of field position. This guy has a good record. He's one of the top coaches in the country. Mm-hmm. But again, it's high school, and it's I admit it's outside the box. And I'm just saying that with the Eagles as they are now, if they had Deshaun Wa- Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Jackson in their prime, I wouldn't be arguing this. They don't have a great punt returner, so something they ought to think about. All right, before we uh, break here, let's let me ask you about the, your latest project you're working on. Sure. So I, I'm. Um, just signed a contract to be able to work on a new book, um, and it's going to be all about the history or a history of the slam dunk. Uh, the slam dunk, or just the dunk, or just the dunk. You right, know, the right. idea of kind of tracing basketball through that shot. For instance, the first official dunk in the game is supposed to have taken place at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, kind of as a, in a way, like a gesture to Adolf Hitler. You get into Wilt. Wow! Yeah, Wilt and Russell, um, and playing above the rim, and the NCAA's ban of it for 19- it was like three years, right? Ten years, nineteen sixty-seven to seventy-seven, and it was banned because of because of Lou Alcindor, yeah, um, because it was too easy for him, yeah, yeah, and probably some other reasons too that we could get into, um, but then you get into Dr. J and Michael Jordan. And the 1988 slam dunk contest, which is the seminal moment in NBA history. It was really Jordan and Dominique, Dominique Wilkins, yeah. who I just talked to yesterday, Dominique. Um, and he was great remembering that that contest. But all that kind of stuff. Five slam a jamma and the 83 Final Four and John ja Morant nowadays. And the fact that the three-point shot has become cooler than the dunk in a lot of ways. There's a whole deep kind of fun history with the dunk and with basketball and with kind of the way America has changed over time. So I'm going to take the next year and write this book and hopefully people find it fun. Who are the, uh, some of the people you're talking to or uh, hope to talk to? I've, I've spoken to Dominique Wilkins. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Julius Irving. Uh, I'm planning to do some traveling for the research, hopefully get to Memphis to talk to John Morant, um, get to some Sixers games, talk to some people from the past. Uh, as I mentioned, the first dunk being in the 1936 Olympics was by a guy named Joe Fortenberry, who grew up in Texas. His son still lives down there and apparently loves talking about his dad. Um, so I'm going to go down to Amarillo, Texas, to, to interview uh, Joe's son. Uh, so this is kind of the fun thing to do with the, with the book project. You get to go where you want to go and, and take it in whatever direction you want to. It was before the NBA, 1936. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in the gold medal game of the 36 Summer Olympics. Any Harlem Globetrotters? In oh, the... there'll be some. there'll yeah. be some Globetrotters. There'll be some... You know, a lot of Philly ties to to things like this. You know who was a great basketball player and who played above the rim before he debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers? Jackie Robinson. I thought you were going to say Sandy Koufax. Because Sandy was actually a pretty good player, too. Sandy, I I got a text message from a dear friend of mine who said, you got to include Koufax in this book uh, because he could could throw it down, too. Good luck uh, getting him to talk, though. Yeah, that'll be like, you know... um, that's like trying to find what JD Salinger or something like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Well, that's a, this sounds like a great project. When when do you expect to have it uh, published? I'm hoping to have it finished uh, sometime next year, and it'll be out in 2024. Nice, nice. So, thanks, Rob Cherry, in for Glenn Mack now with Mike Sealski. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four WIP Sports Time twelve twenty one. Two one five ninety four ninety four. I'm Rob Cherry, in for Glenn Mack now with Mike Sealski today in the midday show. At uh, one o'clock today, the Go Birds, and at three at three o'clock. Leading off, and then 3.30 is Phillies on deck, and then uh, Phillies baseball today. In San Francisco against the Giants, Noah Syndergaard versus Jacob Junis. 
Phillies lost last night 13-1 to in San Francisco. Not the good. They had a terrible start to this road trip, and the first game against the Giants was rather pathetic as well. 13-1 loss last night. So if you didn't stay up or you didn't have Apple TV or didn't listen on the radio last night, you didn't miss anything. It was just an awful, awful situation. All right, 215-592-9494. Let's get uh, some phone calls in here. Danny on the cell. You're on 94 WIP. Hey, what's going on, man? Good to be with you guys. Hi, Danny. Uh, so I want to give my prediction. I really think if we don't win 13 or 14 games this year for the Eagles, it's going to be a disappointment. 13 or 14? Wow. Uh, I mean, well, 12 or 13 is what I meant to say. But I think they should be in the running to host the NFC Championship game. I mean, you should sweep Washington. You should sweep New York. Even if you split it with the Giants, you should win the division. That gets you at least one game. But this schedule is weak. And I know we talked a lot about the dream team today and how it didn't pan out. But with the talent they added, if you're not pushing at the end of the season to be the number one seed, to have a, a, a buy in the playoffs and possibly host the NFC Championship game, I think it's a disappointment. You didn't go out and spend the money you spent and make the moves that you made to do anything less than that, I don't think. You know, it's interesting, Danny. I think, um, I, I think you are correct to a degree. I wouldn't go as quite as far as you are in terms of the optimism. I'm optimis- optimistic about them, too. I, I think they should win 12 games this season. I think anything beyond that is kind of pushing it just because um, the three— and again, we've been we've been talking about this for weeks now because of the moves they made in the offseason. The three big questions are Jalen Hurts, Jonathan Gannon, and Nick Sirianni. Um, and I do think there's a continuity question there too, Rob. I think that, you know, it is going to take a little time for the new acquisitions to assimilate into the offense and the defense and for, you know, Gannon to get it, you know, a really good sense of how he wants to de- de- to deploy some of these players, Hassan Reddick in particular. Um so we'll see, but shouldn't that some of that stuff been done in the preseason though? Well, in a preseason game, maybe they're, because of the, they're all new. They're, they're doing new. they're doing that. Uh, I mean, look, they're they're doing that at practice. They're doing that at walkthroughs. They would argue that you don't need to do those kinds of things very much in a game. And I'm inclined to agree with them only because now the regular season is up to 17 games. Um, it's going to continue climbing. You know the the. Uh, CBA is going to expire in what seven or eight years and we're going to get at least an 18 game season if not more than that I think and so the preseason games themselves are going to become less and less relevant players aren't going to want to play in them coaches don't see them as as useful as, as in the way that they well, want what about to regular season you mean you can just throw a regular season game away because the, the team's not ready or they, they just need to acclimate nobody's going to be ready it's just no. going to be a matter of of you know who's less ready than, than yeah. the other team um, because the NFL wants to make money and it's you know it's going to keep expanding the regular season and, unless the players themselves push back. Imagine what happens if the defense plays lousy in Detroit and they lose because of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, believe how me. people are going to react? Like, why didn't these guys play in the preseason? Why were we fooled again by a dream team defense that can't play together? Yeah, but there are 16 games to go after that. You're right. I think that's exactly what the reaction will be. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, not because I think that the Eagles will be super prepared for The Lions aren't that good. I just don't think the Lions yeah. are very good. Um, and so uh, we'll see. But you're right. Like, that always happens. They they lose the op- If they lose the opener, um, people are, are 
apoplectic over it. Um, but I don't think they're going to lose the opener. I think they're going to be fine, at least I, week one. I would agree. Uh, Ruben in Germantown wants to talk about the opener. Ruben, you're on 94 WIP. How's it going, yeah, fellas? How's everything? Great, Ruben. How are you? Uh, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, I'm going out there uh, Friday. I'm going to the game out in Detroit. Oh, really? Uh, Driving? Yeah. Yeah, we're going, we're going, the fellas are going to do a road trip out there. Are you going to see any place on the way, or is there somewhere uh, in, in well, the Detroit we, area well, you're going to check out? Well, we definitely going to check out Hitsville with Motown, with Temptations, and everybody, the studio, they put their tracks down. We're going to do that, and then we're going to probably try to go to the, what's that, the famous uh, Ford uh, factory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to check out a few things out there. Yeah, there's a there's a famous and terrific pizzeria. Um, in Detroit. In, in Detroit. Um I want to say Supino, I think. Um, it was featured in the Food Network. It's supposed to be really, really good. So um, I might be getting their name wrong, but if you get a chance to Google it, uh, find it well, and check we're it out. Sta- we're standing, I think it's called Livonia. Is it Livonia? I got to okay. look at it. It's, it's like outside. Like, well, it's, it's, the stadium is like 16 minutes from where okay. we're staying at. Well, my question to you guys is, uh, like, I guess you touched on it a little bit about the practice. Um, do you have any concerns? Like like a, like a possibly upset or anything. I mean, I don't I don't see it, but like, what would be your concerns if that was to happen? Well, I mean, my concerns would be it's week one of the NFL season and anything can happen. Um, yeah, because there, there's there's really no identity, right? Right. You, we we don't know much about these teams yet. Um, you know, I mean, look look at it this way. Go back to week one last year, and the Eagles absolutely destroyed the Falcons, thirty two to three. And at the time. I think it was 32-3, maybe 32-6, actually. But anyway, at the time, the narrative was, oh, okay, well, the Falcons are going to be terrible. We know they're going to be terrible. They're proving that they're going to be terrible. And what ended up happening was the Falcons were a little bit better than people thought they were going to be. This is a no-win situation. If they lose, it's like they're not prepared. If they win, it's like the Lions stink. Right. Yeah, it's exactly right. So oh, I, I'm, I'm, think, I'm trying to think back, because I, I went to that game, too, last year when they opened up against the Falcons, and I think they were underdogs. It, it was like two and a half, right? No, it was three, and then at game time, it dropped to like two and a half. Yeah, and, and look, the Eagles weren't as good as they looked that first week either. Um, right. You know, and it, it's week one. It's week one, and, and I'm it's a. Bo- the, it's, it's the it's the hard not that scaring me, man. Yeah, not I think I think, me, but it's just you know. It, no, it Ruben, I think toes. I think you're 100 percent right about that. I think people who really pay attention to football are watching hard knocks, and they're learning. Here's what it is, though, Rob. They're learning. They think they're learning something about the Lions that they're not seeing from the Eagles. They feel like they're getting an inside look at the Lions, and we don't have an inside look at the Eagles. The so Lions are working harder. Yeah. They're not taking this for granted. The Eagles are just like, oh, we don't need to uh, well, play anybody in our preseason we, games. There, it's it's you are able to see it on video that the Lions are working hard, and you are not able to see it with the Eagles. Doesn't mean the Eagles aren't working hard. I have no doubt that they are, but the the visual of it and the story of it resonates with people in a way that it can't because the Eagles aren't on hard knocks. Well, I'm not watching hard knocks, so neither am I. I. Guess I'm not scared. <laughs> I'm, I'm I, I could because I keep hearing people bring it up. Mm-hmm. Like, well. It's it's hard knocks. Yeah, it's not like you know. Yeah, um, l- look, there are a lot of teams that aren't on hard knocks that are going to be better than than the Detroit Lions. Detroit will be. is does not know how to win. Nah. They're going to have to prove they know how to win before I, you get scared yeah. of them. Yeah, Stephen Bristol, you're on ninety four WIP. Hey, Mike, you're going to do the book on a dunk, right? Uh that's that's the plan. You're gonna you're gonna include the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, spell this out for me. Connie Hawkins is the father. Uh, I'm already. I just said to Rob during the break, Steve, I am in the midst of reading Connie's uh, book, uh, Foul, that, right. he, that he co-wrote in the 70s. 
Uh, and I've already reached out to members of his family. I'm looking forward to doing well, a deep dive on Connie. Well, the thing with Connie Hawkins, Julie Serving, and, and Jordan, Jordan, the only thing they yep. had, had in common was Julie Serving's idol was Connie Hawkins. Mm-hmm. He tried to pattern his game against them. They played occasionally, and they're, they're a big age difference. But uh, Doc said, I can't be him mm-hmm. because he's big. Guy. He, here's the guy who's almost 6'9", yeah. could fly. And the only, the only story I ever heard about him is when he finally made it in the NBA, it was the Suns against the Lakers. Mm-hmm. He, he did a sky hook dunk on Wilt, hmm. and they were coming down on the court, and Wilt said, do that again and I'll kill you. <laughs> and, and Connie Hawkins says he knew Wilt from New York, and when Wilt tells you something, and, and, and they asked Wilt later, what, what, what did you do to shut Connie down? I just told him stop. So wait a second. So he never did it again. He he didn't dunk on Wilt at all in the, in the playoff series. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do a deep dive into this into this anecdote to find out uh, if the, it's true. The funny thing is, with Connie Hawkins was he always felt what's the word abandoned. Yes, because he was suspended in yep. his prime time. Yep. Yeah. He, he was always trying to make up for it, and Will told him, he says, "If you're going to make me look bad, I'm going to kill you." <laughs> it was as simple as that. He said, I know you got a big chip on your shoulder because they kept you out of pro basketball, but I wasn't the guy that did it. Yeah. You did it to yourself. Yeah, well, trust me, Steve. Connie's going to be a big part of the book. I've only just begun the research. Um, I got more than a year to work on it. So I, I really appreciate the interest. Um, and, uh, you know, all will be revealed in 2024 when I finally publish this thing. Vince in South Philly, you're on 94 WIP. Hi, guys. Good afternoon. Um, Mike, real quick, uh, I don't know how you take this. If you ever uh, hosted a show with Robbie E., I don't think I could tell you guys apart. You sound so much alike. <laughs> wow. But uh, <laughs> No, I think it's just me talking a lot. No, uh, no, no not at all. Um, regarding Jalen Hurts and, the pro- and his progress, um, I have to go back to last year's Tampa Bay game. Now, what I'm about to say isn't going to change the outcome or the result or whatever, but... To me, to this day, it still bothers me that they deferred the kickoff. And I'm saying, you got to be kidding me. You know, you give the, you know, the opening possession to Tom Brady. I'm thinking this is the, the one time you don't do that. And and then you know, a short time later, it's thirty-one nothing, and that's the ball game. To me, I could say the game still could have ended thirty-one to fifteen, but on a different level. In other words, like say if. Uh, you know, they didn't defer the kickoff. Okay, you could, there could be somewhat of a competitive situation still going on. And I was envisioning, say, uh, Tampa goes up, like, say, 24 to 7 in the third quarter, and then um, Hertz drives them down, and they, you know, convert to two point conversion after the touchdown, and all of a sudden it's 24 to 15. In other words, you see how he reacts under different points of the game, and then Tampa scores the touchdown to make it 31 to 15 at the game, at the end. Now, obviously, it doesn't impact, uh, you know, whether they would have won or not, but the point is you would have gotten to see Hurts under different game conditions, and then you would have had a better idea, okay, here's what he does well, and here what, here's what he doesn't do well. Well, well I would say this, Vince. Um, if memory serves me correctly, the Bucks got the ball to start the game, drove the field, and scored a touchdown. Easily. Easily. And the Eagles went three and out. So you learned a little something about Jalen Hurts right there too, and 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 their readiness for a game like that. Um, Maybe he was feeling the pressure because he's already behind seven nothing. You, you never know. He did not have a good day that no. day, um, and they struggled to run the ball against Tampa's front. They got they got out everything against. The Buccaneers, but that maybe day. it's different if they get the ball first and move down the field may- a little. Maybe, bit. 
Maybe. Those first-round games throughout the NFL playoffs last year were very one-sided. Um, it was the first year that the I think that the league had expanded the playoffs, yeah. um, gone to seven teams in each conference, and those those first round as great. Well, that's why as, the Eagles made the playoffs, right? And as great as those second round and championship games were, I mean, you're talking about the Chiefs, well, Bills were game, you know, all of them were tremendous. Those first round games were completely one sided. So, look, we can debate all we want. Should the Eagles have deferred? Should they not have deferred? The Buccaneers were a much better team than them last year. It would have been stunning if the Eagles had gone into Tampa and won that game. What's funny is usually it's the wild card weekend that's got the better games, and the second weekend they're blowouts because you have a wild card team going against the division champ. Right, exactly. You, you, you've got the second seed playing yeah. the first weekend uh, because only the, the top seed gets the bye. So, um, look, I think to a degree we can make too much of that one game, but it did show how far – away the Eagles were at that time from genuinely competing, you know, to be one of the top teams in the conference. Ed and Upper Darby, you're on 94 WIP. Hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, Rob, I used to talk to you back in the day about the Sixers and all that and all that. What do you think about the Sixers this year and all? Uh, what do you think, how these are going to perform? Um, I'm I'm a skeptic about the Sixers. Even with all the improvements they made, you're going to have to prove right. that, that James Harden really is coming to play this year. Right, right. And they were my favorite Philly team. But you know my favorite? I'm talking pretty My favorite Philly team now is the Philadelphia Union. I'm going to the, the 10th game next week against Orlando City. But I think that's the mo- that building is the most a- a- athletic atmosphere ever. I mean, that, they, sons of Ben, they never stop. They never shut up. I mean, that's the, that's the, the electricity over there is unbelievable. If you've ever been to a Union game, it's unreal. And I believe they, if they, they're going to win the championship, then you definitely deserve a parade. It's, it's, they're just so good. Yeah, you know, that's what got people interested in the Flyers back in the late, the early 70s, right? Is that it It was the style of play. It was Broad Street the Bullies. Broad Street Bullies. And it was success. It was Philly's foray into a major sport and a major sports league. It had not happened before. And it didn't take the Flyers long to become a dominant and different kind of team. Now, is this happening with the Union? They're, they've been dominant this season. They're they're terrific. As we said earlier, Ed, every indication is the atmosphere uh, at that stadium in Chester is just incredible. It's uh, unbelievable. It's like the know. building is shaking and all that. But real quick on, on uh, the Eagles, I think they're going to lose week one. I really do because I think Detroit played pretty well last year at the end and all that. But you know, I think the Eagles are going to have a good year. But I just think that I have them losing week one against Detroit. Uh, I don't I, know how you feel about uh, yeah, it. Yeah, you know. Jared Goff doesn't scare me um, as an opposing quarterback. I, I don't see what the Lions have. And again, could be wrong. As we said, it's week one. Anything can happen. But I don't see where the Lions are the kind of team that can pull off that kind of upset from a scheme standpoint. There's nothing about them where I go, well, they've got this creative offensive mind or they've got this quarterback who can pick you apart. They 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 don't scare me. They found ways to lose last year, and I don't know that they found they know how to win yet. Yeah, I and think that's you've been saying that about the Lions for fifty years, and I they've think, never been in a Super Bowl. I don't no. even think they've been in a conference championship game. Maybe once. I think once in against Barry Dallas. Sanders. Maybe uh, they beat Dallas, and I think they got killed by the Packers. I want to say right. I, f- I forget. Um, sometime in the early nineties. That's they, hard to do. Yeah, to not not even be in, in fifty what fifty five years Super Bowls. Yeah, they've never never been in one. No, them and the Browns, right? The Browns have never been in a Super Bowl. The but yeah, but the Browns haven't been around that long. 
Well, I mean, the Browns were no, winning championships no, no, no. in the, the early... Cle- the Cleveland Browns became the Cleveland... They moved to Baltimore. That team went to the two Super okay. Bowls. Okay, all right, all right. The, the original Cleveland Browns are somewhere else. The, these Browns started in, what, 1999? Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, I, so I was then, even thinking of them in terms of, like, the Bernie Kosar Browns, you know. That wasn't even them either. Yeah. That was the one that moved to Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's difficult for a team to be in the league as long as the Lions are never in a Super Bowl. True, right. true. We come back, I want to get your all-time top five or, or starting lineup for LaSalle. Oh. Right, Rob Cherry in for Glenn Macdow today with Mike Sealski, and Mike is a proud LaSalle grad, class of uh, 95? Uh, 97. 97, close. Yeah, okay. yeah not bad. So not they, bad. They, were, they were already falling on lean time, so while you were there. So, yeah, the um, I started there my freshman year was the fall of 1993, and LaSalle was in the Midwestern Collegiate Conference. What the hell is that? That was a league uh, that supposedly was going to expand to get some eastern area teams to play basketball there but those things fell through those moves fell through who were the teams in that league uh well you had some juggernauts western uh wright state wright state detroit mercy right illinois illinois chicago loyola chicago which were big draws at the goal i'm sure oh huge huge well the goal hadn't been built yet when i went there so So we would go to the civic center and it was like being at the bottom. It was like covering a basketball game or watching a basketball game at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I, I mean, saw Sean Bradley play BYU. Got out played by Milko Leverst at the uh, Civic Center once. I, I once covered a game. I tell the story all the time, and I've told it to, to him. I covered a game once there as a as a college student and sat next to Dick Girardi from the Daily News. And the Civic Center was so empty for the game that DJ looked around and said to me, you know, if you took everybody in this arena and put them on the floor— Nobody would get called for three seconds, <laughs> and he was right. DJ had some good lines. He did. He did. So, yeah, lean times for the Explorers then, and, uh, you know, as as we mentioned earlier, and I can't believe we're spending this much time talking about LaSalle basketball, but uh, uh, we're hopeful, you know, LaSalle alumni everywhere are hopeful that Fran Dunphy can kind of stabilize things and maybe hopefully turn the program right. around. We'll as, a, as an historian, give me your all-time – LaSalle starting five. Okay, so this is just me. This is mine. Um, I think LaSalle's history in college basketball and in the city gets underrated a little bit. So you got to start with Tom Gola, still the NCAA's all-time career leading rebounder. Record that will probably never be broken. Uh, you got to go with the L train. Lionel Simmons scored 3,000 points, third leading scorer in NCAA history. Got to go with Michael Brooks, National Player of the Year in 1980. Again, gets forgotten. Uh, tragically uh, passed away five years ago, uh, excuse me, six years ago. Uh, Kenny Durrett, part of the greatest Big Five team, or one of the greatest Big Five teams of all time, the 68-69 LaSalle My favorite team, ever team. My favorite team ever. Went 23-1, and could not play in the NCAA tournament because of NCAA violations from the previous head coach, but would have given UCLA a run for its and money. the coach of that team was Gola, correct? Tom Gola yeah. came back and... Saved the program, basically. Uh, Dunphy was on that team. Uh, was a bench player. And then personal favorite of mine, uh, a guy who not a lot of people probably remember, but should be remembered as a great, great offensive player, one of the all-time best in city history, Kareem Towns, who played when I was there uh, at LaSalle, still holds the Big Five single-game scoring record. Scored 52 points in one game. And it happened during a week where there was a snowstorm. So there was nobody in the Civic Center to see this happen. It's, Who did they play? I think it was Loyola of Chicago. 
and he scored 52 points in a single game for the Big Five scoring record. Uh, and if you were at this game, you should. I hope you still have held on to your ticket stub all these years later because if there were 300 people in the gym that night, that might be an overestimate. So, I, there you I, go. I had two different ones. I had Joe Bryant on my, on my okay. five. Good one. Kobe's father. Sure. And uh, Larry Cannon. Ah, yeah, another played, member of the 68-69 team. Great, great offensive player. He's a great uh, He was a point, like a 6'5 point guard back yep. then. Yeah, that, that 68-69 team was just amazing. Fatty Taylor and Bernie Williams and, and as we said, Durrett and, and Cannon and Dumphy coming off the bench, and he was going to be a senior the following year. He was a terrific player. Um, and I love, I love talking about the city's college basketball history. I'm, I'm just a, a geek for it. So uh, thanks for indulging me here. There you go. Uh, and LaSalle was my favorite team as a kid because yeah. I was sort of in the neighborhood in Fern Rock. Yeah, and, and, and like I said earlier, you know, as great as Jay Wright was at Villanova and as high as he raised the level of that program, um, it did contribute to kind of the, the, the de-emphasizing of the Big Five. Um, and Jay gets it. Jay always got it in a way that um, not a lot of coaches do when it comes to the history of bas- college basketball in the city. He he was weaned on it. He grew up on it. Totally got it. Um, but he just took Villanova to a place that these other programs haven't gotten to. And he's a Hall of Famer now. As That's of amazing. Last year. Yeah. Uh, last question I want to ask you about because we got we got to make room for the next show for uh, the uh, uh, guys at uh, Parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sixers are they as cl- the Sixers as close to a championship as they think they are, or are they? delusional and even thinking they've been close for several years i i don't know how close they are i don't have a problem with what they did this offseason signing pj tucker and making the other changes that they made because they don't really have they didn't really have another choice you know once you go kind of all in so to speak on james harden you got to make a play for right now and joel Embiid is in his prime you've got to try to take advantage of that tyrese maxey seems to be an emerging star you've got to try to kind of catch that wave as well um, but I'm not sure if they're closer. Um, they took a big swing with some of the signings and the trades they made to get Melton and guys like that. We'll see, but, uh, you know, I feel about them kind of the way I feel about the Phillies in September. All the skepticism uh, that surrounds them is warranted until they prove us wrong. Right, what is the uh, next column you're working on? Uh, When's couple, it coming out? Uh, i got a couple things in, in the hopper. There's uh, one coming out about Hassan Reddick, you know, local guy, grew up in Camden, went to Temple. Kind of, to me, he's the guy who holds Jonathan Gannon's future in his hands. If Gannon can't figure out how to unleash Reddick as a pass rusher and use him in the right ways, um, this defense is going to be what Eagles fans and the Eagles themselves want it to be. And when is that coming out? Uh, probably this weekend, I think. Right. Maybe maybe sometime early next week and you part of the inquirers eagles preview i will be yep i will be in detroit just like uh uh caller mentioned earlier uh heading out there to to cover the season opener next week and is there like a panel of people that make their picks each week too uh are you part of that i am not part of that we stopped making picks a couple of years ago um we do do more coverage of gambling um but i don't make picks nobody should follow any any pick that i make (laughs) uh in any sport um so you know, I'm not sure how much we do with that. On our website now, on Inquire.com, we do, um, you know, cover gambling a little bit more than we once did. All right. It's Mike Sioski. You'll be back next week, uh, same time with Glenn. Glenn will be back as well. Yep. Looking forward to it, yeah. as usual. Fun Thanks. working today. Yeah, our, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, we will uh, Phillies baseball today at 4 o'clock. Uh, Kyle Quinn was our producer. WIP Sports Time, 1255.
TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device. Credit service ported. 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier. And timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.